Hi there, I'm Alexander Shaw, and this is a very special episode that marks the 500th podcast that I produced since I began in early 2007. So that's 209 episodes of Digital Cowboys, which ran from 2007 to 2011, 161 episodes of Digital Gonzo, which overlapped that first show and ran from 2010 to the end of 2013, 77 Digital Drift episodes, which ran from the beginning of 2014 to late 2015, and 53 episodes so far of School of Movies, which began in late 2015. Now this is some of the funniest and most important bits. Some history for the newcomers, some memories for long-time listeners, and the biggest thank you I can give to everyone who I've worked with and has guested along the way, and every listener who has made mine their favourite podcast. That's why I do it. That and the fact that it's just so much damn fun. So let's start with my first ever appearance hosting a podcast, and this was Joinee Radio, March 22nd, 2007, where myself and Paul Shotton read aloud part of a manuscript for a novel about an assassin written by one of our friends, and those who listened to the Dramatic Readings episode of Digital Drift will recognise this story. Advanced warning, this is a story about a horrible man who has a horrible view of women. This is Joiny Radio, episode 18, Silver Joiny Alex here, and with me is my good friend Joiny Plex, or Paul. Hi. Okay. Uh, this is a special one today because uh, we're basically uh, my our mutual friend Joiny Tomahawk, also known as Tom, um, has is an aspiring writer and uh, a musician and various other things. He's a jack of all trades, and um, he recently sent me a, a short story he'd put together um, uh, regarding an assassin because I'm planning to do a film of the same sort. Um, I'm not sure if he meant it to be a comedy, but he has an absolute gift for for comedy writing his his character is possibly the most odious and arrogant uh, that i've ever read and it's just brilliant and i need to share it with the world because i i, I laughed so hard i cried last night so uh basically we're just, i'm just gonna take you through it and uh and and read this out and uh and hopefully someone may actually you know hear this and and sign tom up for some sort of book deal because he deserves it honestly i learned my trade from my father as he had done from his. I never knew my mother. I mean, she was around, but I never got to know her as a person. My dad was my mentor from the age of 10 or 11. He taught me all about weapons, how to look after them and how to use them. He took me to kung fu and karate classes, and when all my friends wanted to play football, he was tough, pushing me as if he knew I was slacking, but always fair, rewarding my good grades and achievements. For example, at 16, when I got seven A's in my exams, including one in sociology and one in history, his reward was my very own Glock 19. However, on the eve of my 18th birthday, the police arrested him while he was on a mission. He told me two things before he killed himself. One, the name of the person who had set him up, Sir Winston Parker Broadbent, the highest police official in England. And the second one was, once you've been arrested, your livelihood is over. There are rules of my trade, and they cover things such as professionalism, dealing with weapon supplies, killing multiple marks, and crossover contracting. E.g., two people hired, hired to kill the same person. These rules are why I'm still number one after nearly 15 years in the business. That and my alter ego. That is, as the bass player in one of the biggest rock bands in the world. <laughs> this has been the perfect cover for my entire professional career, and meticulous planning ensures that neither work interferes with the other. Unfortunately, today is shaping up to be one of those days when not only will my professionalism be put on the line, but my sanity as well. I called them back to say I'm on my way. As I race down the stairs, I now have no time for the breakfast at the hotel I'm staying in, and it looks so good today. 
The traffic would be a total fucking nightmare if it wasn't for my rented Harley Davidson. It makes movement through the jams a little easier. I nearly get arrested by a cop after nearly taking off the wing mirror of his car, but I just give him a sorry, mate, in my best East London accent. He just glares at me and gives me a verbal warning. I arrive at 10.55, starving, a little frustrated, but also with the feeling that I have probably made one of the quickest cross-town trips this city will ever see. However, the stupid bitch behind the reception desk must have an IQ of a squashed fly, as she can't seem to see that my appointment has been moved. I lose count of how many pieces of identification I need to produce before her blonde brain registers that she has to call Mr. Taylor's personal assistant to tell him I'm here. Told you. I'm sitting with a coffee and a donut, giving Mr. Taylor the silent treatment as he reviews my portfolio. I can see him musing to himself. He's trying to figure me out. His body language betrays his every thought. Your reputation and past performance speak for themselves. Black silk shirt with a maroon silk tie. (laughs) Suits you. Smart jacket and your clean shaven. But why the ponytail? Clean black combats and smart black boots. But why are you wearing sunglasses inside? Anonymity, I say suddenly, taking him by surprise. I have now learnt to use a multitude of different handguns, knives, automatic rifles and sniper rifles, but another weapon in my arsenal is psychology. I can use it to make people relaxed or keep them on edge depending on who they are and what they want. I also use psychology to make people say what I want when I want. For instance, in the summer of 1997 when I was travelling in South Africa, I met a group of people who were... Who wanted me to assassinate a political opponent, so I made them pay up front. Unfortunately, they wanted me, <laughs> they wanted me to kill a single black woman who was six moths pregnant. Now, the first rule of any good assassin is never kill women and children. So I helped her fake her own death, then assassinated the group's leader, and Mr. Rutger van Hanrads. Thank you very much, says Mr. Taylor, as he finishes the call and turns back to me. Is everything in order? A simple nod from me as all he gets is an answer, and I look like I'm going to get ready to leave. Mr. Taylor turns back to look out the window. So it is confirmed. He'll be dead by... The rest of the words are lost as one of my gloved hands covers his mouth. I love getting the victim to pay as well. Sorry, asshole. I only kill important people on Friday the 13th. Your business partner beat you to it, I whisper into his ear. He struggles for a while as he breathes in the poison of my own making as that is laced into my gloves. The poison triggers <laughs> the cardiac arrest in the victim and as yet is indetectable by police forensic labs. I wait until he goes limp, then seat him back into his chair. Mr. Taylor looks really unwell, I say with mock concern to his personal assistant as I leave. I think you should check up on him sooner rather than later. After learning how to podcast, thanks to Matt Fowler introducing me via Joining Radio, I got together with Paul and our friend Tony Atkins and we started our own podcast. Uh, It was originally called Media Frenzy for half an episode, then we renamed it Digital Cowboys. We were like riding the fringe of uh, gaming and movie journalism. And um, this is a clip from our first show where Paul and I were talking about Curse of the Golden Flower. Everything that was excellent about Hero, uh, still no, nowhere near as good as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but everything was excellent about Hero, about House of Flying Daggers, and the heart that was in the, the middle of House of Flying Daggers, and the, the, the soul and the um, self-sacrifice of Hero, vacuum, gone, completely, nothing. All you get left is veneer and gold paint and is a waste of everybody's time and money. And Zhang Yumo should be thoroughly ashamed of himself. Now I've said my piece. Paul, what did you... They didn't like it then. There, there was a moment when, um, after a lot of talking, 
a bunch of ninjas turned up. And I went, yes. And Paul also went, ah, oh, last. And I suddenly realised that Paul was just as bored as I was. I thought, yeah. oh, great. I thought it was just me. I thought it was just stupid. And I couldn't appreciate another, no, per- no, another it, culture. No, no, it was. Uh, I think it was, uh, probably was around about the 20-minute mark after the third, uh, you know, someone walking past a... Uh, one of the rooms shouting. Oh yeah, there's this guy that the tower who keeps going past, going ah, it is the hour of the rat. It and you're, just, oh. yeah, it just incredible. I mean, my, my, oh, my main beef with they do film. it every three minutes. Okay, my, I mean, my main beef with the film is that it is incredibly boring. I mean, <laughs> the the really the, mar- oh. the martial arts bits in it. I, sp- I suppose if it, you know, it's not, I mean, it's all well and good for, to have them, you know, swooping camera with a th- army of thousands, but you just you know, if you so don't care what? about a single one of them. I don't care. Them. I don't care what happens to these people. I mean, usually with, with these sort of films, it's a sort of fight between two or three characters at the most. Yeah, Jet Li and, and Donnie Yen in Hero. That start was a great start. And it's quite uh, sort of beautifully done, whereas it's just, you know, some guy in the middle of a bunch of people and he's just all running around. It's just, it's really, really There's poor. no coordination to no, it. No, it's, it's just... It's just it looks like a mess. No, it looks like community theatre with a budget of millions. <laughs> so yeah, as you can hear, pretty basic. Not that fantastic at reviewing yet, but a little bit of potential maybe. As time went on, we got way better. We started getting mentioned on other podcasts, and that was really the secret to us going for jumping from 75 listeners to like 1,500. And um, we got on all kinds of guests on the show, and it was it became this way of of meeting people and just having these fantastic conversations and we'd originally started Paul, Tony and I to just sort of stay together because we've been you know good friends throughout our teens and then we lost touch somewhat uh, over our you know our 20s and the show really did help us You're listening to Digital Cowboys. News, reviews, discussions, and uncensored opinions on the world of video games. You're a game company. That's why you make Mario. So if they carry on making a new Mario game, a new Zelda game, the stuff that we've come to rely on, that's all well and good. But the one thing they forgot to show in this conference was anything for that demographic. Move to the next section, you shoot all the guys there, you move to the next section. What other shooter doesn't do this? But it's what they do with the AI to make those shooting sections interesting. I mean, one of the achievements is play it for more than 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) When we do an imitation of a Ponzi Brit, do we sound as bad? Yes. Yes. I am actually sitting here drinking tea as we're doing this podcast. Is there a trend in the industry you wish you could do away with? Activision. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Tony Atkins. Welcome to the This is from episode 48, which was late March 2008. Actually, just to make this uh, episode uh, just a bit more special, uh, can I just make an announcement? Shoot. (laughs) Right in I, I've been dying to make this for so long, but ultimately it's never been the right time. And I think ultimately I, I, I didn't want to step on any specific like important reviews that we've ever had. But so just to finish this episode off with a bang, um, my wife has been pregnant for the past couple of months. Is that surprising to you, gentlemen? No. 
Yay, we do really? already. Hang on. So, um, baby's due in September. What? That's why, if you go, go back and listen to the earlier episodes for the, since what, you know, two, two months from now. We've been making oh uh, so unsubtle, um, references to the fact. An entire sort of, episode on what so films to show kids. Yes. Your kids. Yeah. Yes. My awful. sudden resurge of interest in Disney and, uh, yeah, securing the Pixar shorts on Blu-ray is one particular, uh, one that I'm, proud of um I, i'm absolutely thrilled cannot wait to be a dad i can understand why a lot of uh, men get really freaked out at the idea um and I, it may still come to me i may sort of be in the hospital going oh fuck oh god oh no i'm not responsible enough for this but um I, i'm champing at the bit to just be able to have a little dude or chick around that i can talk to and and teach and can you know have fun with and just looking really you know exciting so um yeah that's me looking forward to it next up from episode 101 in late april 2009 the first time we ever crossed paths with a man named daniel floyd later of extra credits what happened was uh i wrote a this is for those who don't already know because i've already said it at least once i wrote an article on uh, sex and video games um i think it was basically after i we talked to Edie about the penis in Grand Theft Auto 4 Lost and Damned. Um, I then listened to Game Hounds that week after, and she was talking about it again. She went on and on and on, dick, 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 dick. <laughs> and what she was saying made a hell of a lot of sense. So basically, she just prodded at my journalistic um, gland, and I thought, right, I've I got to write about this. And I, I included her in the thing. I, I gave her credit and said, like, she's given me this idea. And I started writing about sex and video games. And I was all just writing free form and thinking, uh, you know, Here's how it's occurred in other games, and here's how it possibly could actually move forwards in the industry. And, and um, I reached the general conclusion that basically the people who say, whatever happened to Pac-Man and Pong, uh, need to die first of old age. Um, and then the people who are born maybe 10 years ago, maybe now, will you know basically be playing video games where sex is an integral part of a lot of adventure or drama games. And it, be- it becomes something that we just sort of wonder why we ever did without it for so long. And then my wife found your presentation. And I was like, oh, shit. It looks like I've just copied him. Christ. <laughs> so I thought, right. I've got to do something about this. I'll get in contact with him and I'll get him on the show so you can say. <laughs> so it was you a can, good article. Yeah, yeah thanks, thank you very much. But uh, just basically so we can discuss it. So everything that comes out of our mouths now is entirely original. We haven't been sort of like copying off each other. Wicked. You know what? If, even if you had copied me, I could not have gotten angry with you because it turns out there's really only been one book on the topic of sex and video games ever written. Uh-huh. It's by a woman named Brenda Brathwaite. She's done a lot. She's just done a lot to kind of raise to just really push sex in video games for a long time. It turns out she is a the head of like the video game department at the school I was at when I created that video. Oh right. And and I and I'd writ, and I'd used a lot from her book in hmm. just uh, in a lot of the background of sex and games and such. She called me into her office two days after it like hit Kotaku and kind of started getting a lot of attention. Oh shit. And, yeah, and I was thought and I thought she was calling me in to just like hey congratulate me hey good job you're pushing you're pushing sex and games good it, I want to talk to you and I was feeling pretty good about myself and then uh, she called me in and and uh, just. Uh, she just really raked me over the coals because I had because I mean I created it for class I hadn't put like work cited or anything at the end of the video yet right I, I just hadn't given her any credit and she showed and she asked me if I'd seen the presentation that she gives at that conferences and such before and I said no and she started like kind of clicking through it really fast and I just 
went pale because it looked it was roughly exactly, the same thing. It looked almost exactly my video. Right. Even, even a lot of the same images. <laughs> just, and it was just, I was horrified. So well, I'm assuming you both did a Google search for that particular game. Yeah, yep, that's that'll I, do. Did, I had. I just used Google Image Search, but uh, she. So, kids, uh, cite your sources. Cite your sources. Yeah, what's well, <laughs> it? You know, I'm we'll starting like with. <laughs> for episode 126 in late 2009, after we'd met them at PAX, we got to interview Jeff Ramsey and Bernie Burns from Red vs. Blue. This was a huge moment for us. We both loved this show. One of the nice features of Halo 2 is when they put Blood Gulch in, they added a lot of clouds. And uh, Halo 2 was very shady, so suddenly we were in, uh, in Blood Gulch, suddenly when we moved into it in Halo 2, the red base was almost completely and totally in the, sh- in the shadows. Mm. And it was very, very dark. And it was so starkly different from Blue Base and a lot of the rest of the map that you would have like this almost like neon red guy, and then he'd be like this really subdued red the next time you saw him. And it was kind of, it was kind of, I guess, jarring. And so Bernie just one day said, "I'm going to figure out how to make him bright on base." And uh, we sat there and played instead of making an episode, which is, "I want to go home and go to bed." And he was like, "No, we're going to spend a couple hours tonight figuring this out." And we sat there for two or three hours, and finally he figured out that if you take the cameraman and you look at a guy in the light, like, all right, say like, say like my back is to the shadow, the cameraman's back is to the shadow, and you look mm-hmm. directly at a character, he has to be a certain distance away, but he's bright. And that character runs out of the cameraman's field of view, runs into the shade or the darkness, and stands perfectly still. If the cameraman turns around, he's lit. He still he maintained the lighting effects from the bright part of the map. Now, if they move, like if they move a, a half a step or anything, it immediately goes away. Mm-hmm. But so what we would do is then we would sometimes have a second cameraman who would be looking at the area we wanted to stage those guys. Have the cameraman facing all the characters in the light away from uh, you know, the darkened stage we were going to be shooting on, we'd run them all out, set them up, get them exactly where we need them to be, then turn the cameraman around, and we'd start filming. And as long as those characters didn't move, we were fine. So you might notice in Halo 2 a lot of, not a lot of movement in some of the shots because of that. If they're lit up in a darkened yeah, yeah. stage. I mean, in summary, the, the way you can think about it is if the cameraman doesn't see them transition from light to dark, mm-hmm. then the darkness never applies to that character. Ah, okay. So he actually he has to see the transition of them walking into the shade. Otherwise, if he didn't see it, they stay lit up. How but many the they move? Then it applies the dark shading to them. How many hours would you guys say you've played Halo? <laughs> Look at Halo. Yeah, I mean, just played or, or messed around in the Halo engine. Is it over the years? Seven years. It's it's really hard to say. I mean, first year it was out. Yeah. Sixty hours a week, I'd say, for the first three years at least. Uh, on average, well, that's about the same as a lot of Halo players I know. Yeah, <laughs> but that's without, the crazy. We still play it afterward. Yeah, you know, that's just a work. And then you go home and you actually get to play Halo. You're like, all right, I've been I've been bobbing heads for 40 hours this week, and I want to actually kill somebody all weekend. And we're terrible at Halo. Yeah, we, we really. Bad. I will say this: we probably have the least efficient, least or the most inefficient Halo time because for as many hours as we've spent in Halo, yeah. we're terrible at it. Terrible. Yeah. That was one of the most fun, most fulfilling interviews of my life. They, they were so generous with their time and so much fun to hang around. And I fucked up. I got too familiar and uh, in the back and forth thing in the email, I was, uh, I was comparing one of the characters in Red vs. Blue to a character in an unrelated TV show and uh, just asking if there was any inspiration and I think it got taken in the wrong way that I was implying that they had copied the character which 
I can't tell you quite how awful it feels to disappoint and upset your heroes. This was one of the lowest points of my career because I, I pissed off people that I respected professionally and still follow the work of. It's always tinged with sadness. So I use that as a lesson to, to do better and to, to, not, to not just assume that, you know, just because you're jocular with someone that you can say anything without upsetting them. Luckily at PAX that year, in 2009, we got to meet some more of our heroes and we got to shake the hands of Giant Bomb. This was a huge deal for us. The exodus from GameSpot and the uh, formation of Giant Bomb and the subsequent podcasts that came from that were what made Tony and I step up our game. These, this is the show that made us go from being about movies and video games to being really focused on video games and being really serious about it in like a, as, as fun a way as possible. But this, they, these guys really made us think about how we could be better. So meeting them was amazing. And we sent them some snacks. We sent them some snacks a couple of weeks beforehand and just hoping that they'd eat twiglets on their show and talk about how gross they were. And um, they mentioned us. And we got more listeners as a result of that. Um, this feels so precious now in retrospect to the fact that Ryan Davis is no longer with us. There's a part of me that really misses this era of podcasting. Uh, but I did want to say that one of the things that Tim sent us was Twiglets, which we had uh, previously been sent by uh, Alex and Tony from Digital Cowboys. They sent us a gift box full of stuff that just kind of got eaten. Um, <laughs> Before the show? <laughs> that happened. Remember those Jaffa Cakes? They sent us those Jaffa Cakes. Oh, yeah. Those tasted like, kind of like orange cupcakes. Yeah. They, they led to me buying orange cupcakes. Those are good. The Twiglets In are terrible. Life. Twiglets taste like dirt. Like like, like sticks, like, like twigs, like literally, like they took sticks. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those. yeah. Terrible. yeah. terrible, terrible. Yeah, that was that was like no. those are not good. So it's like a little twig. Yeah, uh, mm. Al Alex and uh, Tony also sent us this sherbet fountain, which came in this Tesco bag. So you know it's good. <laughs> which is basically a just throw this just in a big plastic, just a yeah, like a little this plastic a sandwich bag, yeah. sitting on a little sandwich bag from Tesco's. So apparently, there's just like a gigantic price war going on between all these discount retailers like Tesco and like Sainsburys and uh, a few other places. Like ads on TV all the time, just like saying like we comp we bought a basket of stuff and compared it to some stuff from Tesco, and ours was cheaper, like eighty percent of the time. Real baskets, r really cheaper. This is in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So it's all got like crazy accents too. Yeah, fired up UK people. And, and there's there's one chain over there that like their their sign of like savings is slapping their ass and having there be a coin noise. Like so, you got change in your pocket. <laughs> I got so you. it's like just people smacking their ass and then a little <laughs> like chain. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I get paid. <laughs> I got some pence. Another awesome thing that happened at PAX, which really is the nexus of all brilliance and I want to go back there again someday and take the family I got to talk to Jonathan Coulton nerdcore folk singer himself along with Edie Sellers of Gamehouse I will confess I'm a fairly fairly new to you since I found out that you were playing at PAX I was like right gotta get into this and very quickly started really really enjoying a lot of the things in fact 
code monkey got me through a really horrible meeting I had the other <laughs> week with my manager. I was just the whole time thinking, maybe you want to write goddamn London page yourself. Um, but, okay, enough of my massaging you. Here's a good question. What do you say to the idea that nerdcore is unique as a genre in that it's almost impossible to fake or manufacture it? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't know, I don't know why that is, but I think it's, I think it's certainly true. It's, it's. Uh, there's a kind of. What I, what I love about the concept of nerdcore is that it's sort of this intersection of two things, you know. And you have cred, street cred, and geekery, and this kind of geek cred, and that's that's a very it's a very real thing. And it's you know, I think geeks have great bullshit detectors. I mean, any, anybody who's really involved with a with a, a niche and a, and a and a kind of cultural phenomenon like that uh, can can recognize when somebody is, uh, you know, trying to use it for. Uh, in, a, in a false way for, for some other kind of game, you know. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 th- I think it's very true that it's, a, it's, an, it's an, you know, it's frequently a, a very jokey kind of music, but it also has an earnest quality to it uh, that I think uh, comes, from a, comes from a true place. Yeah. Um, final question, actually. The one pain in the ass thing about your music is it's really hard to get regular people to understand it. Uh, it's about a passive-aggressive robot who's trying to control this particular... And you, it's... So, regarding the whole idea that Nerdcore can't be faked, yeah. it also can't be mass-marketed. So where, ideally, do you see your career going? You know, kind of here i mean it's pretty it's pretty great the way it is you know i'm 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 making a living by writing and singing music which is sort of a miracle to me still and um uh you know i i don't i suppose it would be nice to be filthy rich and never have to worry about money ever again but it doesn't feel like a crucial part of the plan you know um so. Well, actually, you, aren't you at a level at this point where people or even um, record labels have come up to you and said, would you like a contract? I, I can't imagine you wouldn't be quite at that stage well, yet. It's come up a couple of times. Nothing, nothing, yeah, there have been a couple of situations like that, but it just has never really made uh, sense to me financially for exactly that reason is I don't, I don't, I don't know that there's a mass market appeal for what I do and and uh, you know that would that would be the reason to go with uh, a, a, a label I think is that is that they have access to that mass market and they can make that happen um, you know I do I do still think that they have the, the power to do that but you know the the I have a such a direct channel um, to a large enough fan base to support me that uh, you know without 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 uh, being certain that doing something like that would cause a huge expansion mm-hmm. in the Jonathan Colton empire, you know, I, it doesn't. I, 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 no, I, I know. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, I'm not. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're right. It's not an empire. It's not an empire. Um, it is if you believe it. Uh, you're right. Right. Um, but you know, to to make it um, 
to make it work, it would have to get that much bigger. And I, I just don't know if that's in the cards. Maybe someday. I don't know. I, you know, I think there's a lot of the stuff that I do does have a sort of a level at which you can appreciate it without knowing that it's about a, a passive-aggressive robot. But you are missing out on a lot yeah. if you don't know that it's about a passive-aggressive robot. There's a lot of subtext. Obviously. That same magical year of 2009, uh, in Digital Cowboys episode 133, we got to talk to Dominic Diamond, the host of Games Master, one of the greatest TV shows from the UK in the 90s about video games. The greatest in the 90s, but one of the greatest ever. Again, Dominic, what a chap. What a funny, genuine, honest, personable guy. Yeah, this is one of the highlights of my uh, journalistic career. We always had a very interesting relationship with Channel 4. Mm. And the, the longer we went on, the more we genuinely did start to get complaints from parents because the less we cared about trying to hide the adult content of the show. Yeah. And so things got less and less subtle. And there was more and more complaints. And so then there was we just assumed that we were getting taken off the air at the end of Series 6. That's why the um, the last show of Series 6, which was one of my favourites, where we had the offence-ometer running throughout the show. Mm. And I pretended to get keep getting calls from Channel 4, warning <laughs> me that if I said one more thing, the show would be cancelled. Now, I mean, forget, you just don't get people doing that on TV shows. It's like shows. Alan Partridge. Yeah. as fiction, but yeah. we were doing it as a factual show. So... Uh, and then there was just that bizarre situation where we all thought that was it. And then, you know, we're all going off and planning different things. And then we get a phone call saying, oh, Channel 4 actually won another series. And they just forgot to tell us. <laughs> As you do. Then we had to cobble together this this show in the in the space of a few weeks. So then on the flip side, did anyone point blankly turn you down? And what were some of the worst guests? Oh, Mr. Well. I, I don't really know the answer to the first one. I, we didn't a lot. We didn't get turned down by a lot of people. Um, this is strange. I, I was gutted that I never managed to get Manic Street Preachers on. Uh, they were huge fans of the show. I um, started hanging out with them as a result of the fact they loved Games Master so much, and I, I had a, a video games column and smash hits at the time, and I kept going on about the Manics every single week, and then finally. Uh, I got to meet them and we did what was then their first ever kind of mainstream interview back in like 93 or something, 293 something. But uh, I desperately, they were so keen to come on and it was just scheduling conflicts for literally six years in a row and we could not get them on. So I was gutted about that. Uh, but in terms of who was the most unpleasant, two people, head and shoulders <laughs> above the rest. Mr. Motivator and Vinnie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Two very well, similar men, clearly. Well, for our American public, they will probably know Vinnie Jones by now, but Lots Mr. Motivator, that. you've got to explain what Mr. Motivator was. So was he just foul-mouthed? There's an American equivalent, isn't there? The kind of little fat guy with the curly hair who's a oh. bit of a fitness guru on American TV, and his name escapes me, Richard somewhere. Richard Simmons. Richard Simmons, that's it. Mr. Motivator was basically like the black British version of Richard Simmons. <laughs> Overly upbeat, like, you know, yeah. come on, let's get it working, people. Leotard, yeah. Yeah, big smiles on breakfast TV, nicest guy in the Bum world. Bag. Hey, not when the cameras aren't rolling, he wasn't. He was really? a total... <laughs> <laughs> What a miserable bastard. He was just the grumpiest. Oh, can we, can we get going? Are we ready to get, can we do this now? 
Well, well you, he was motivating you effectively. <laughs> he was the most demotivation <laughs> in the world. Um, and Vinnie Jones was. Um, I mean, Vinnie Jones is exactly as you would imagine. Um, terrifying. He's very, very scary. He is very gruff and um, very financially orientated. Like I say, we often have things that overran in the show. And Vinny was very different. Vinny would just sit in his trailer, become, oh, I'm sorry, I'm Vinny, we're running half an hour after. 500 quid. (laughs) 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 And and he just held us to ransom all the time. We'd come in, sorry, we're still running over there. Another 500. (laughs) I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to imagine you standing up to Vinny Jones and I'm getting that episode of Extras where Ross Kemp pissed him (laughs) off accidentally. He's like, oh, you odd. And like, "Uh, no. Throughout all these shows, we always used the same theme tune, which was Love Song by a little-known but incredibly talented musician from America called Mark Chance, who was very generous in allowing us to uh, to use it every week. And uh, his music actually ended up on the Cartographer's Handbook, the first uh, version of that. I figured he was kind of like my good luck charm. I've always hoped to work with him again sometime. <laughs> Their names are Alex Shaw and Tony Atkins. Alex and Tony from Digital Cowboys. Together they are the Digital Cowboys. Our friends, the Digital Cowboys. Digital Cowboys. Digital Cowboys. A dynamic duo of dynamite podcasters that deliver a show of divine quality each and every week. We just recorded uh, with the Digital Cowboys yes, right before this. Fun times. Two very, very swell chaps. The Digital Cowboys. Digital Cowboys. Digital Cowboys. I just recently appeared on the Digital Cowboys podcast. The Digital Cowboys. They're British. It was fun times because they're British. Yeah. Yes. And they had the sexy accents. It's true. In-depth gaming discussion. With special guests and interesting questions. That's an interesting question. In episode 130, I got to meet James Batchelor for the first time. Now, um, before we start, I've actually, I, I used to read G-J-O-B. Just give us a quick rundown on what that was. <laughs> That was um, my personal blog. Um, it's GJOB, Games Journalism or Bus. I started up when I was at uni mm-hmm. um, as a kind of blog to keep up to date with um, how I was going to become a j- games journalist. It was, you know, articles I was writing. I was doing a lot of work experience at the time. I did work experience with things like PC Gamer, Official PS2, Official PSP, and a, an, a now defunct trade magazine called InStock. Mm-hmm. So I used to put like all my old articles on there, and I've still kept it going because I just I like having a blog somewhere I can vent. Obviously, working for a trade magazine, you kind of restricted in you you can't really give an opinion. You've just got to report how it is. What does the we have going for it that it didn't have at launch? Right. Well, okay. A lot of people think that the we doesn't have anything going for it at all, regardless of compared to where it was at launch. But when you look at it, Nintendo have completely gone from one end of the spectrum to the other so okay to to backtrack two three years end of the gamecube era nintendo was really down on its luck it was surviving only on pokemon merchandise Mm. the gamecube as great a console as it was and most people who had a gamecube recognized it was a brilliant console there's really good games on it you know it, it stood up quite well to the ps2 and xbox but for some reason nintendo just couldn't get the third-party support, so it never had as many games as the other consoles. 
Nintendo were well and truly third place in the industry. It's quite a competitive industry. We're always like, oh, who's winning, who's losing, who's leading. In episode 167 in mid-2010, we got to meet Neil Taylor for the first time. The trouble is there, though. You're trying to compare the PSN live experience to Xbox Live, which they don't go. They really aren't comparable. I don't think. They are two different types of service, even with PlayStation Plus. You know, at least with uh, Xbox Live Gold, there's an infrastructure there that developers have to build too, whereas it's a bit of a free-for-all. It's the Wild West on the PS3. How many <laughs> great, you know, online games on, are there for the Xbox that when you go and play the PS3 version, they're terrible? It's kind of funny how some things change and some things stay the same. Some of these guys I am still friends with six, seven years later. Then there was that time that we did the top 50 video game characters of all time, as voted for by you, the listener, and one of our favourites who wasn't included uh, got re-included on the list while we tossed out a particularly unpleasant character in her place. That's very subtly done, and I, I, I can't... I can believe, and it's very sad, that Kai wasn't on this oh list as well. Kai is a fantastic character. In fact, you know what? Number 24, Duke Nukem, he's out. I am the king of the world, baby. Duke Nukem is not in this what? fucking Let's... list. Kai from Heavenly Sword. My gun's bigger than yours. Let's talk about Duke Nukem anyway. No! Um, he's bollocks. He is a fucking walking testicle. Don't worry, girls. There's plenty of Duke to go around. He is a, just a ball of of cliches and shitty one-liners. It's a good day to die. You're beautiful when you're dying. Confucius say, die. I could do this all day. Fuck Duke Nukem in his fucking ass. Get rid of him. We don't need Duke Nukem in this damn age. I'm surprised he's picked up as many votes as he has now. Because I get the joke. He didn't. The joke Kai was... did. Kai takes all the votes. <laughs> but the, the joke was funny back then. I like big guns, and I cannot lie. And, and maybe this is us just being that kind of, oh, you know, games move forward, and how dare people, you know, kind of remember the way that, you know, you know characters like this. But I think he has a place with on this list. I'm just surprised he's quite as high as 24. Say hello to my little friend. <sighs> It's, it's an incredible. I mean, I think once again, that's that's kind of just you know thinking back in, into your past and maybe games that you know you spent a lot of time with, and, and Duke kind of conjures up that kind of you know remembrance. But yeah, it, it, I think his day is coming. I think you know Duke Nukem Forever will prove quite how far we've moved on from that kind of humor. So. You'd think they'd learn. I guess we'll see. But uh, I'm more than happy to put Kai in his place. Even yeah, that's totally no. Because the the. the <laughs> The even though it's tongue in cheek, the objectifying of women in the Duke Nukem games and the shake it baby uh, versus how empowering Heavenly Sword is, fuck him. I go where I please, and I please where I go. Kai and Noriko share places to kick Duke Nukem's ass off this list. Squeal like a pig. What do you feel about Duke Nukem? Finley man. Nah. Really quite indifferent to the character. I never really thought there was much of a character there. Just as a stereotypical kind of man's man. Drink beer, look at boobs, smoke cigars, kick ass. Only he's got this groovy thing from Ash in Evil Dead 2, and that's just groovy. You know, funny back in 1997. I love the smell of bird crap in the morning. Okay, so Duke, you're off the list. You talking to me? No, no, no. Get out of here. We don't want you. No, I'm really pissed off. You've had your day. Go. I'm not going to fight you. 
I'm gonna kick your ass. Go away. Hang your head in shame, dude. You invincible headshot scripted cheater. Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. I hate to kick my own ass, but it's gotta be done. Hmm, so there is life after death. Then there was the triumphant opening montage of our Legends of Zelda cast. Most of it comes from nostalgia for me. It was the first Zelda game I'd played. I have to admit, straight off, it was the first Zelda game I played. There's only one reason for that, and that was because it was the first Zelda I've played. I was completely, completely enthralled by the mechanics of the game. I hadn't really, up until then, I know it's hard to believe, but hadn't up until then never completed a Zelda. I always hit an impasse with some section of the game I couldn't get past, and then I got distracted with something else, something that we're all very familiar with. They were barely ever necessary. You unlocked, like, one dungeon with them, but, you know, just being able to use them and basically kill all the enemies on the screen, they were just fun. It just was a fun experience to just get those, use those, wipe out enemies. It was just a fun thing. You come to this bridge in the game, and there's these monkeys guarding it, and it's the bridge is all broken. And if you have gone through the game, and you've basically got to a certain situation where someone has given you a banana, give the banana to the monkey, he'll, he'll build a bridge. And I also liked the ice rod for that reason, just freezing enemies with it. It just, It was just a fun thing to do with that and it was really nice that it seemed like a weapon like that was put in the game just to have fun with it beings called the twilly um invade uh hyrule and they herald from the twilight realm and they're led by their king zant um a character called midna kind of takes the same role as navi in uh ocarina of time except she's not an annoying little piss weasel there's this one particular bit where they had this jug which could blow air out it's a very useful item but it could also blow and suck things and that sort of thing and one of the things it could blow away is cobwebs i remember i used to with ocarina of time i used to um go through for my sister my sister wanted to ride the horse but didn't want to actually play the game so i had to go through and do the first three dungeons she goes can you just get me to the bit with the horse yeah oh. sure brilliant more zelda um, and I'd get her there, and then after that she'd get bored. So, but it was worth it. In, it increased your health, or it lowered the cost of your magic spells. But the problem was, was that when you got more, more mag, when you got it up and you got a new magic spell, it would cost a lot more. So if you had leveled up all the way, it would basically cost against you, and that was still a very high level spell, and that was a problem. A lot of Zelda fans got really annoyed by him having his sword in his right hand rather his left hand. I don't know why that was a huge deal. I, I mean, I, I haven't played previous ones, so obviously having a sword in his left hand is a major story point that I clearly missed. But I would say that one of my most fun things to do in that game was to just power up the sword, hold it out, and to just charge into those little knights that had the swords with it and to just duel with them. That was always a really fun thing to do in Link to the Past. Man, I, I 
can't believe you guys never played this game. That drives me crazy. That's insane to me. I'm sold. I want to buy that thing. I want to you play need that to game play it. now. You need to play it. Guys, it's on the Wii. Download it, please. Oh, no. It is the best of the Zelda games. Please download it. I know, I'm gonna. I've always been told it's not that good. After that, we managed to snag an interview with Paul and Storm, an absolutely world-class comedy songwriting duo who tour with Jonathan Coulton. We talked, among other things, about PAX. It's the audience, though, that they sort of recognize here is something happening live, this live event that is based on what they experience usually only online by themselves on a computer. So you have this feeling like it's summer camp, you know, and everybody is gathered physically in one place to celebrate all these different things that uh, geeks and nerds love. So computer we camp. Were... Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> without yeah, a, without like as that. much, like, terrible cafeteria food. Or insects. It sounds <laughs> like a condensed version of PAX that isn't just about video games. It's, it's funny that you say that because one of our sort of abiding missions at the beginning was we wanted it to sort of be like condensing down all the good parts from a convention without all of the you know without all of the uh people stinky after having not showered after two and a half days. <laughs> so making quick that's a good one yeah <laughs> but if you can turn all of pax into just a single concert event but not just focused on gaming you know it's yeah. it's a different thing entirely from pax but really after we had been to pax we recognized that as yes uh I think I mentioned how there was all this goodwill in the audience. That's yeah. what you feel at PAX. And mm-hmm. to be able to do that in a night of entertainment, and that's really what's happening. That's what uh, Tony and I noticed when we, with the moment we got to PAX, this surge of, of just feeling of being um, accepted by everyone, and everyone was polite, yes. and everyone was nice, and everyone was positive, and everyone was excited, but no one was pushing, and it was weird because we come from england where everyone pushes no one cares they stamp on your face they queue solemnly in the rain and we went to Eurogamer a few uh, months later and and um it, it wasn't bad yeah. but it wasn't as nice and in no 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 disrespect to the Eurogamer folks i'm sure you guys would like it to be as good as pax uh, obviously the fact that people hadn't come from far and wide and actually stayed the night and you know there, there wasn't the smell problem or the uh or, <laughs> It, like everyone got SARS or pig flu or something like that. Uh, what, what were we going to die of last year? Swine flu. No, swine. swine um, flu. Yes. Bird flu. Yeah. Bird flu. Pig flu. It, whatever what kind of f- flu from whatever kind of animal was fashionable that month, um, yeah. we were all going to get it. And I think a friend of ours was really frightened that he had got it because uh, he spent the last day, the day after PAX, basically a zombie. Uh, that's it. This is, this is Paul. We're really sorry, Paul. But um, yeah, <laughs> um, it was me. Okay, I was. Sp- I I brought my little vial of Pax Pox. Different Paul again. But um, I but yeah, no. liberally on my hands. Shook hands with everybody. But the feeling at Pax was addictive to the point where we can't make it this year, and we are yeah. sad about that mm-hmm. fact because sorry i'm gonna try for 11 i'm gonna try and bring my wife this time because that yeah. that feeling of being there and just being okay right um was it ah yeah actually it was one of yours when you were singing frogger the frogger musical oh. which i'm gonna stick yeah. on right now yay 
At the very end, when you were singing, now I'm home, and everyone was, you know, waving their uh, iPhone lighters in the air, and occasionally an analog lighter, uh, and it was just sort of a, a sea of DSs and a sea of iPhones and a laptop or two, and everyone was singing, now I'm home, and waving their hands in the air, and it was, a, for most people, the first time they'd ever heard that song, and yet the unity yeah. that we got there was palpable, and I think Tony, was- Tony doesn't cry much, but you've got a little... Choked up at that point. Yeah, it was. It was completely. It was very touching to see from the stage. I mean, you know, we'd sort of, you know, to a degree, that song is calculated. Like we were kind of hoping that section would 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 be a everybody wave your lighters kind of thing, and we would encourage it. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I can say I personally was not quite prepared for just uh, well, a that degree of of people waving their uh, lighters and and such. And it certainly was was. You could say calculated, but really it was a way to try to channel that energy. Yeah. And, and yeah. the hope yeah. was that the song would be a way for people to feel that and express it and really create uh, that uh, sense of community. Often days I wake up and I look at Twitter and I feel like it's now a different world for geeks, for fans. Uh, subject for another show, I think. Paul left the show after 88 episodes when Tony and I started getting very serious about our approach, mainly and understandably because he still wanted video games to be fun for him. Tony and I recorded together through 2009 and 10 and several months into 11, managing a total of 208 shows, the final one being on L.A. Noir. Listening back to 208, I sounded like a pushy, loud mouth, and I am not proud of what I'd become there. In the meantime, I'd started Gonzo Gaming, which then became Digital Gonzo, my solo show, that allowed me to write angry political rhetoric, but more importantly, I could finally apply the focus we'd been giving to games into movies as well. By that midpoint in the middle of 2011, I was juggling two major shows a week, and the strain was getting to both of us. Sharon and I were also going through a pretty dark patch as well. The future of our relationship was in the balance, and something had to give. That something, for the good of us all, was Digital Cowboys. We put it on hold for many months and then recorded one final show after Sharon and I had resituated ourselves from Kent to Lincolnshire. Paul came back and the three of us got to reminisce over four years of going from shambling amateurs to semi-pro podcasters. 
Tony was starting up Kane and Rince with several of the friends we'd made along the way, allowing for both more focus on single games and with a larger staff, less pressure on Tony to co-host every single week. I was planning dozens of movie shows and guests for Digital Gonzo as well as the website that still hosts our podcasts today. This final 209th episode was pretty emotional, but we all went on to do much better things and we're proud of the body of work behind us. Most podcasts don't see episode 11. I was happy to have made it this far with Tony. This is a letter I got just after the um, that the, us announcing that we were going to actually hang up our spurs, or at least this we were going on hiatus. This is from someone named Ilfrin Greyhawk. Hello, Alex and Tony. I'm a 21-year-old student from somewhere in Europe, and I've been listening to your shows for over a year. From a young age, I've always felt different, and it took me a long while to stop criticizing myself and accept who I am and ultimately like myself. That came out wrong, but you understand what I'm saying. So as my personality was clearly set in stone, I finished high school and drove off to the sunset to the university seeking people like me with which I can exchange knowledge. And they were, surprisingly or not, on the internet in the form of two, and once upon a time three, outlaws of gaming and movie culture. This smug, charismatic fellow called Alex and the strong, wise Tony reminded me of my best friend and I, just two kids starting out and their role models. However, the biggest event came about two months ago. I was constantly fighting with my girlfriend because I had commitment issues and my friend Eddie, mentioned before, was really stressed out about his dissertation. Because we live in different parts of the country, we haven't seen each other in some time, so we decided to run from all the shit in our lives to a silent cabana in the mountains. One night, we were sitting on a porch like real cowboys, smoking and listening to your show. It was episode 200 and we were entertained at first, but towards the end it got serious and you were reading that beautiful but heartwarming letter. I started tearing up and Eddie just couldn't say a word to save his life. It was then that we realized we couldn't run anymore and we had to become men, take life as it is and be the best we can be. The next day we drove back home. Eddie began finishing his dissertation and I took my girl on a date, which we haven't done in a while where I gave her the key to my apartment. Now, Eddie is a certified bioengineer or something like that. I can never remember the whole title. I started writing again and actually letting my girlfriend read my stuff. Maybe this story is not as significant and impactful as others you have read, but I felt I should share it with you. So what do the digital cowboys mean to me? Nothing more or less than life-changing. I wish you both all the best. Your friend, TJ. (sighs) Now, we had a whole bunch of uh, letters like that, but that sort of stuck out in my mind because I was like ah once again in our meandering stupid way we've sort of you know put out quite a good show and somehow actually managed to genuinely affect someone and it's all I've ever really wanted to to be able to actually feel that I've actually with my stupid stupid shows um, make people a little bit happier I've just had to check my arms I think I've got goosebumps on them yeah, and that that's what makes the you know the decision. I, I know from my my point of view, you know, the, the decision to to you know step to one side and and try something different was was made not made hard, um, but was a very very big tough decision in my life. Um, it's, a, it's it's there was a number of things that I ne- I needed to change, and there's a number of things that I think Alex obviously you needed to change. Um, but you know, reading letters like that, you know, when I, I think it finally dawned on me, you know, what was going on, then um, it's yeah, I'd, I, I, admit, I was pretty upset and pretty heartbroken that you know, I, I but it, you know, much like listening to that letter, uh, and I remember reading it at the time, 
there is certain things you need to do and although as uncomfortable it is for other people to to listen to or even to understand um some things it's the right thing so yeah uh, <laughs> yeah that's that's probably where I'll, I'll i'll end it i don't know i say i'm terrible at goodbyes because it's not really a goodbye it's you know Hopefully, see you in you know, yeah, see you in future projects that we we both put together. Yeah. If nothing else, I'll catch you at Eurogamer. <sighs> what a that was great Eurogamer. <laughs> Maybe a future packs. We shall see. So that's it from us. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed our shows. Uh, we hope we left the world a little bit brighter than when we came in. And most of all, we hope you guys want more. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Tony Atkins. I've been Paul Shotton. Happy trails. You're listening to Gonzo Gaming. I'm Alex Shaw. Episode 1, Flawed Gems. What an amazing time. What a family. How did the years go by? Now it's only me. Those of you who are familiar with my Gonzo podcast will know how constantly changing and evolving it is. So now here I am, back at the start and without Digital Cowboys to wear my immense passion for video games. Ironically, Gonzo was begun so I could talk about anything else, and now the show can hopefully expand to be all-encompassing and include games as well. The past four and a half years of DC have been incredible, and I've come into contact with some fantastic people, interviewed folks I never thought I'd have a chance to, and produced some work I'm very proud of. I'd like to give my warmest thanks to Tony Atkins and Paul Shotton, who stuck with me on the show as long as they could. Without their friendship and the dynamic that exists between us on the air, we can't have a show called Digital Cowboys, so that's why the name had to be put to bed. However, for fans of the style, the integrity, the honesty, the humour, the attention to detail that we always prized, my intention is to bring all of these things along to these new shows and by all rights Tony and Leon with their new show Ken and Rince will be doing much the same so we'll all get to keep doing the podcast that we love and you guys get to keep listening everyone's a winner Petit Dejeuner as Black Shaw says and it wouldn't be true to the star without some well researched distinguished and wildly charismatic guests so please welcome for this week's discussion Nevermind the Buzz Geeks blue team captain and regular co-host of the wonderful Joypod podcast presented by Spong.com Mr. Michael Fox oh hello there I felt I should do the proper intro like he does normally (laughs) (laughs) oh Mike thank you Uh, another mainstay of the DC guest stable joins us in the shape of one Sinan Kuba often of Big Red Potion hello as I said, it wasn't an overnight transition from Digital Cowboys to Digital Gonzo. I started out writing short audio articles well over a year before we finished. And the audio article was a media form I was sure was going to become huge in the near future. The idea being you could either 
read the journalist's writing or listen to it by clicking the thing at the top of the page. This is what I based Gonzo Planet on originally. It was going to be like a magazine website that you'd go to where you'd get just as much written content as you got audio content and you could choose. Probably should have been becoming a YouTube personality instead at the time, but I was trying to corner an untapped market. A multi-part collection of these articles is coming to this very feed in the next few weeks, so you can hear what I was talking about as I found my individual voice. After those, I began on the Star Wars reviews, a sextet I had been dying to delve into during Digital Cowboys, but just didn't have the format right yet. These became the basic model for what I do today regarding movies. They were originally inspired by Mr. Plinkett from Red Letter Media, who managed to be both funny and insightful in his exhaustive overviews of the prequel trilogy. Only mine didn't require a disturbing psychopath character. In fact, I decided very early on that I would always be myself and not take an online handle or affect an online persona. What you hear normally in every show is my outgoing extrovert side. It's this, the introvert who does all the studying up and retreating to be alone and edit. Oh, except during this bit in the Thor show in 2012, which was a skit where I parodied Mr. Plinkett. Thor was the most disappointing Marvel film since Howard the Duck. So Sir Anthony Hopkins kicks the crap out of the Frost Giants, he kidnaps the leader's son and holds him to ransom, tells the kid he's his father, makes him believe he could be king of Asgard someday, and then proceeds to spend the next thousand years telling his real son how fucking incredibly strong and brave he is. Not sure why Thor and Loki only look about 27 at this point, maybe it's like cat years or something. Like that lion cat I once owned who stole my goddamn station wagon and drove to Vegas and married a mobster's wife. So maybe in Asgard every 37 years is like one year to us. Or maybe it's like Highlander and you just stop aging after a certain point. But that doesn't explain why everybody isn't 27. I mean, Olden looks older than I am. And I'm 104 years old. So Odin throws a party to remind Thor he's a total badass. The kid goes off and starts a war with the poopers who pooped his party, and Odin is both surprised and disappointed in his son. After a thousand years of him being an arrogant, warmongering bully. I ground him to his room until he can play nice. Only his room happens to have Natalie Portman in it. God, I want that punishment so bad. Then his other kid, the one who's not really his kid, but more like Theon Greyjoy from Game of Thrones, or some other political prisoner, works out he's got a little frost giant in him, and asks his father what the hell's going on. At which point, sensing an overwhelmingly awkward conversation, Odin conveniently falls asleep for an indeterminate amount of time. That kind of reminds me of my ex-wife whenever a conversation cropped up about the noises coming from my crawl space. You made her cry. You keep quiet in there! You don't know what your actions would unleash. Turns out Loki was really the son of this guy and OH MY GOD WHAT'S WRONG WITH YOUR FACE! Email me if you want a picture of after the Star Wars shows, I started doing occasional quiz episodes named Nevermind the Buzz Geeks, modelled on the British comedy panel show Nevermind the Buzz Cox. Frankly, these are so much fun, and I laughed so goddamn hard every time that I'd do them every week, if they didn't take so long to prepare. So here by popular request is Cosmo Cats. Now this one's a tricksy curveball, so be careful before you answer immediately. Oh, 
I think I've got the QI answer that will set the buzzer off. <laughs> yes, okay, right. Um, anyone want to take an educated guess at what this might be without going straight for the QI answer? Red, Matt. I think it's Thundercats. <laughs> actually got one point for that there, Matt, but it's not just is Thundercats. It, is it the Japanese version of Thundercats? Are you close? Because it didn't sound like... It, it didn't have the female vocals. It had a it had a guy singing it. It sounded like right. Is it Voltron? Nope. It's Thundercats related, yeah. It is indeed. Is it the Sexy Mumra show? <laughs> Which is not right. the Sexy Mumra show. Mumra, see me flash. <laughs> okay, it was indeed Thundercats, but it was actually the French Thundercats, which is Cosmo Cats. This is how it sounded. Did you drop the sword on his foot? Oh god! Just me? Does that sound really, really camp? Cosmo! 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 And it should be Cosmo Shat, surely. Cosmo Shat, I believe, yes, you're quite right. Who is the Cosmo Shat? Oh! Cosmo Shat, the top of him! Who is the sword? Oh, snap! Snap! Oh my god! Yes, now! Allez, let's go! What's French for sword? Another one that's been asked for repeatedly is the explanation of time travel in Back to the Future. Now, this is only part of it. We go on a lot throughout the trilogy, but this is the basic gist of the river theory versus the multiple realities theory. Okay, let's talk about time travel. This is the big one. We have to discuss time travel and how it works in the Back to the Future trilogy. And this is going to be fairly complex, and I confess I've tied my own brain in knots trying to comprehend all of it, but here goes. There seems to be four possibilities when movie time travel is discussed. One, Terminator time travel. Just backwards, never forwards. It also states only living things. Every time someone is sent back, it affects the one true timeline, although certain events seem impossible to undo, namely the birth of John Connor and the destruction of humanity at the hands of Skynet. This is very similar to, number two, Harry Potter time travel. Everything that can or will happen has or will definitely occur, and all time travel is part of that. So if you inadvertently become your own grandfather, like in Futurama, then that would always have been the case. Three, Back to the Future Time Travel A, one main river of time that has various offshoots that all eventually lead back to the mainstream. Four, Back to the Future Time Travel B, 
the multiverse theory. In this version of events, every action has consequences. If I flip a coin, it, the universe divides into two, one where the coin lands heads and one where it lands tails. Determination wins out over destiny, and no one thing is certain. In this manner of thinking, every journey in the DeLorean is a trip not back or forward in time, but diagonally sideways into another dimension where you will be able to affect events and create more realities. The tricky part is that you can only then stay on that timeline or travel to another. You can never go back to your original point of mental existence. Once Marty broke the pine tree in Old Man Peabody's farm, he could never go back to the very first timeline we saw, which we'll call Twin Pines, after the shopping mall. Instead, he exists on a new timeline called Lone Pine, where Peabody has got to make do with just the one. The mall's name is changed. George never got hit by Frank Baines's car, but instead learned to harness his self-confidence, and he and Lorraine were able to make a better family situation that the Twin Pines version was never able to do. We must not spend our time stating what could or couldn't happen according to scientific theories we understand to be true today, because in this fantasy movie world, Doc's experiment works. His proof outweighs our theory, which means we have to reevaluate our understanding of science and the timeline to fit the movie, not the other way around. Okay, why am I here? <laughs> it's because you I needed someone who could get their head around this shit. Which of the two I thought you were gonna talk about the science of all this sort of thing. Okay, fair enough. Carry on. Which of the two Back to the Future theories seems to hold the most water, one river or multiverse? Because at times it seems both theories are in effect, and one contradicts the other. I'm thinking it's the well, it's one... Gotta be, it's got to be one river. Because yeah. if it was multiverse, the minute that Marty went back and affected his parents' timeline, mm-hmm. then it, him not existing wouldn't have mattered. Precisely. That's the, one, that, that's the bit that contradicts the um, multiverse theory. And that's what bothered me. It's yeah, you you shouldn't be able to affect your own existence in a multiverse um, time travel. So. In fact, the consequences of that permutated themselves by him gradually disappearing. Yeah. Ah, no, that's the ripple effect. Away. Another thing worth bearing in mind is the ripple effect. When Marty saves his dad and prevents the Twin Pines meeting between him and Lorraine, he should, by all rights, immediately disappear, because whether they get together later or not... What should have happened did not. The five-day delay appears to be the ripple effect of the timeline writing itself affected by probability. So when that ginger kid goes, Square McFly, I'm cutting in. The probability of George and Lorraine getting together ever at any point in the future decreases rapidly and Marty begins to disappear. When George stands up to Biff, he vastly increases the chances. But it takes him maintaining that strength to not only bring Marty back to 100% probability of existence, but also to change the whole Lone Pines timeline event chain for the McFly family. They become far more successful and happier as a result. Now, this disappearing of Marty actually does detract from the multiverse theory because it would be quite possible for him to travel to a new dimension and undo his own conception so long as his previous timeline kept on going without him. He would and should still exist in that time, just not in the future of this new dimension. From that, we can only really conclude that it's the river theory that wins out. Okay. I think I follow that. Okay. The internet news was a very short-lived pair of mini-shows, a tribute to the Chris Morris TV shows The Day Today and The Brass Eye. Basically a deadly serious news show about something entirely ludicrous. Honestly, if it wasn't just pinching from Chris Morris all the time, I would do these all year long. You're listening to the Internet News. Welcome. There's been a sustained panic on the internet for many hours today, which began when several pages of Wikipedia caught fire last night. 
On the scene, Ardle Cake Chimney Theft reports. The blaze broke out at 10pm London time. Early reports suggest that a page on the subject of fuel was left too close to one on oxidising agents, and both overheated when a man in Dubai used Wikipedia to look up fire. The flames spread quickly to other websites being viewed by people with multiple tabs open. YouTube alone lost over 700 videos from their section on pets reacting to their reflection, and there have been countless cases of third-degree burns to the Facebook. Professional teams have contained the blaze for now, but Wikipedia cannot be accessed without installing appropriate firewalls. We spoke to a woman affected by the incident. She was so shaken by her ordeal that the following interview is barely intelligible. The danger of internet fire is that left unchecked it can wreak untold damage across every site you've ever looked at. Potentially, if someone were to google a blaze of this size, it could spread across the entire internet. Specialised online fire teams can contain the flames by passing a cooling gel down the series of tubes in the foundations of the page, but this gel is expensive to manufacture and conservative figures state that supplies will be depleted before red tube could be saved. Independent shopping website Amazon.com have spent the morning reinforcing the warehouses where their e-books are stored. E-books are at particular risk due to the electronic paper they are printed on, which nullifies the effects of both kinds of fire extinguisher. There is also a danger of microfires being spread via Twitter. A single retweet from somebody with enough followers could burn away half the world's memes in just 23 minutes. And the internet news is going to remain at the scene for the rest of today, bringing you updates every hour. Coming up next, more panic in Lisbon as Minister for Housing goes feral. Accusations of steroid abuse for the British Olympic gymnastics team. And a possible resolution of the trial of the man who ate David Cameron. See you shortly. This has been a Gonzo Planet production of the Internet News. For thoroughly inspirational slices of televisual news coverage, find and purchase DVDs of the day-to-day and Brass Eye. More never mind the Buzz Geeks, this time on the subject of classic commercials. This one for a very well-known coffee. No, I've, I've always kind of liked a bit of Iron Brew every now and then. Can anyone tell me the guy on the right? <sighs> hmm. It must be for a chocolate bar. No. Really? It looks like an arrow. Nope. Every single one of you saw at least one of this long-running series of ads. Oh, is it the coffee guy? This cafe Who's that? Coffee. Uh, Anthony Head? Yes! Yeah. Giles. Anthony Stewart Head. <laughs> now, obviously, this one's every single gold blend advert back-to-back, and I watched them earlier today, and it's fucking sickening after a while. It's, it's, like, it's like, hey, Anthony Stewart head. But did they make sense in the end? They, no, they don't, because they keep yacking on about coffee. Just I watch can't it watch eight minutes. and a half minutes of this. Oh, a few minutes will do. Hello. I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm having a dinner party and I've run out of coffee. It's a very sophisticated coffee. Have you met your new neighbour yet? Oh, I've uh, popped in for coffee. The coffee. How's the coffee? 
we're on the coffee. We uh, share the same taste in coffee. You can't resist my coffee. If this were a restaurant, they'd be putting chairs on tables about now. And I'd be asking you back to my place for coffee. I'm on the first flight to Milan in the morning. That's terrible. Why? They don't serve cold blend in Milan. The coffee's right there. Could I offer you a coffee? Great coffee. Came round for coffee. You're supposed to be in New York. I didn't like the coffee. Our tasting coffee. Do we have time for a coffee? Coffee tastes good. Excellent coffee. I don't know why I let you do that. Because I... You okay. serve better coffee. Mr. Hyde. I love you. Now, golden roasted, richer, smoother, Nescafe Gold Blend. Coffee. 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 Excellent coffee. But, but they keep going, you can't resist my coffee. <laughs> we share the same taste in coffee. I've come in for some coffee. Well, they're coffee, trying coffee. to advert, <laughs> advertise coffee. What do you want? Well, just, they, they keep using it as a metaphor for sex. <laughs> just say sex. Uh, you know, in America, um, it was the same, same exact series of ads, but, and it was the same actors. Same setup, but he spoke American. They got Anthony Head to go, ah, oh, you can't resist my coffee. Coffee. And she, and she was still <laughs> English. And it wasn't Gold Blend, it was Taster's Choice, which is what they call Gold Blend in America. In this episode on movie cliches, which I did with James Batchelor and Neil Taylor and Matt Ramsey, we discussed literally hundreds of different cliches that uh, turned up in a book written by Roger Ebert, God rest his soul. And this one, one of my favourites, is all about the screams that we hear over and over again. Back on track, shall we? Right, does anyone know what the Wilhelm scream is? Yes, and I can't do it, but it's the... Oh! That's... Oh! It's the scream that cropped up in every Star Wars film ever. Well, I'm going to play it now. Ah! It'll be very familiar. There's also there's like a female version as well, which is like... Uh, which is just as bad. It's like, when you hear that scream, it's basically like a little signal to your brain saying, that henchman is dead. You yeah. just stop worrying about them. They were kind of pathetic, and now they've fallen over a cliff. It's I that simple. I, I never noticed how many films that's in until someone pointed out that it is, it's Fucking one screen. But as soon as someone identifies, says, look, ignore everything else, listen to this, this is the Wilhelm scream. Mm. Every film you see it in, you hear it, and you ah, oh, that's the Wilhelm scream. It's and you so silly. So much more. You can't, imagine if Michael Mann put that in heat. You know, I have this uh, recurring dream. I'm sitting at this big banquet table, and all the victims of all the murders I ever worked sitting at this table and they're staring at me with these black eyeballs I have one where I'm drowning <laughs> <laughs> if a hero jumps over a waterfall 99% of the time the villain surmises that he's, he's dead, dead. 99% of the time, he's, he's not, not. <laughs> the other 1% of the time There's it's rocks the end the of the movie and basically, falling over a waterfall is a total rush, and it's incredible, and it's a good way of getting away from a, a, a you know a dangerous scenario. It's not, however, an absolutely crushing, terrifying, horrible way to die, which is actually what would happen if you fell over a waterfall. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the Internet News. Behold. There's growing concern amongst parental communities in the United Kingdom this week after several dozen counterfeit schools have come to light, bringing into question with them the entire educational system. In Camden, Steve Chisel reports. From the outside, this appears a street like any other, 
Children can be heard in the playground of the nearby school of Boswell. But step over the fence and it's a different story. The voices are merely a recording. The climbing frames are the gutted skeletons of burned out cars and the only children you'll find are 132 dejected seven-year-olds sitting on packing crates. Boswell is one of the many schools that have been found to be counterfeit after investigations this week. This boy here is Danny. He's been attending for three years now and his mother has only just found out that he's learned absolutely nothing. Your son's been at this school for, for many years? Yes, um, he's been there since he was four. Uh, well, I thought there might be something up the other day. Um, we went out and we were counting dogs together and he could only count up to six. So you say last week you went down to the school to pick him up early? Yes, it was for a dentist appointment. I went into the classroom and it was being taught by, I think it was a chaffinch? Or might have been a starling? Possibly a sparrow? Yes. How did it make you feel? Right, you've told us you went to the local council to notify them in person. I did, yes. And when you got there? They were all made out of bits of wood. Wood? Yes, there was some metal in there as well, I think, but uh, they looked as though they'd been that way for a while. Children for many years have schools, and with the parents' growing concerns 12 to teenage, with a 60% increase of educational prolonged under the responsibility of government-funded institutions, especially if the child in question is a three-eyed bastard. Pirate schools are produced in massive numbers every year on the Asian market, a figure growing with the proliferation of cheaper internet providers. Since 2009 there has been a marked increase in their filtration into European territories, piggybacking official schools in a way that makes them indistinguishable on casual inspection. All it takes to install a pirate school is an empty building and a name. It is believed by experts that the sheer number of these institutions in countries like India and Tijuana keep the business model profitable, since for every 10 pirate schools identified and closed down, two flourish. It's very possible that thousands of children in these third world pirate schools that slip through the net are being educated by mistake. So how do you know if your child is attending a pirate institution? Michael Fox of Little Metal Dog has this there. Their uniforms may become corrupted, which can lead to large areas missing on the back and the knees. They may also suffer extreme shoe elongation. They may have skewed points of reference, perhaps not knowing that there were two world wars or thinking that a hospital is a type of fish. On speaking to your child, there may be long periods where they are subtitled in German or Arabic. There may be a 30% colour loss, coupled with poor sound quality and undue skipping. Their exercise books may be fabricated from a waxy substance and will either be entirely blank or filled with alarming imagery. Many of these schools also like to use the children as storage spaces, so if you find unfamiliar files in their droppings, then it should be taken as a warning sign. The biggest worry among parents is the practice of double pirating schools. These are copies of copies of schools. It's thought that any education that goes on there may be rubbish. Coming up next, Bolivian man swallows tank to save orphanage. Oh. Does the sky exist? asks TV chef. I mean, we've never seen proof that it exists. Have you ever been to the sky? And two-time Mayor of London Boris Johnson bakes some cupcakes all on his own. Good night.
This has been a Gonzo Planet production of the Internet News. For thoroughly inspirational slices of televisionated news coverage, find and purchase DVDs of the day-to-day and Brassai. This next snippet is from Blue Sun, which was the prototype for what became the New Century Multiverse. It was a different world set in a post-apocalyptic future, and itself a refinement of the first version, which was set across multiple planets in our solar system. But New Century fans will recognise certain hallmarks, certain scenarios from this clip, maybe even a character or two. I only ever made a one-hour audio drama of the first few chapters here, but as many of you know, that became something much grander. A woman walked along the jungle path, eyes wide with fear, the sounds of wildlife around her rising to a cacophony of warning. The air under the canopy was thick and sticky. She pressed on deeper into the brush. Her red hair hung limp with sweat around her brow, and resting in the crook of her arm was a basket of supplies. She paused a moment to look behind her, hearing a particularly harsh growl some distance away. As she turned back to the path, she found a tall gentleman in her way. With intense eyes, fluid movement, and effortless grace, he moved towards her. You look lost. She nodded and gingerly reached out to take his hand. The dark stranger smiled and lowered himself into a bow, touching his lips gently to her fingers as he did so. I am Paka. Which way are you headed? Surrey village, east of here. I know it well. Please, allow me to escort you, miss. It did not sound like a request. The woman nodded again and began to follow him. They wove through the jungle, staying on the path. Paka told her stories about growing up here until eventually... He had led her down a vine-laden avenue of low-hanging trees. This is a shortcut. When she began to protest, he took hold of her hand again in reassurance. After a while, the trees closed in even further and the sunlight had dimmed until they were enshrouded in shadow. Slowly, Paka turned around, his eyes gleaming in the darkness, as he looked her trembling form up and down. Did nobody tell you about this jungle, sweet one? She did not reply, but gazed into his eyes, transfixed. Let me go. Parker smiled more broadly now. His teeth had begun to grow long and sharp. He shook his head and his neck began to bulge and crack back as dark fur broke out all over his face and his pupils became slits. His mouth opened and he screamed a feline cry of pain and hunger as his entire body began to warp and twist into his other form. His torso elongated and curved, and his hands formed into barbed paws. There came a sudden flurry of movement and three flashes, and the woman now stood defiant before him. In her hands was a long, curved dagger. In a panic, and still in the grip of transformation, Paka's head switched around just in time to see his stomach spring open and drop its contents onto the jungle floor. At the same instant, his upper right limb dropped to the ground, and in a final movement of pure astonishment, his head lolled back, revealing a yawning chasm in his neck, now erupting with arterial spray. The woman bolted away from this, shutting her eyes and mouth as the remaining pieces that had been Paka succumbed to gravity. She made her way nimbly by touch and sound towards the nearby river, dived in, swiftly and thoroughly cleansed the blood from her body. Swimming far upstream, she removed her gore-soaked white dress and emerged naked from the water, cleaning her dagger until she was satisfied. She made her way back to the scene of carnage and pulled a second dress from the basket. This one was green. She looked down at the mess that had once been Paka. 
Protruding from the wound in his stomach was the chewed but quite recognisable form of a young child's hand and forearm. Her lip curled in disgust as she struck the creature's head from its shoulders, and then with care wrapped it in her formerly white dress. Then she dropped it into a second waterproof oilskin bag and stowed the head, retrieving her scabbard and sword belt as she did so. Then she began the walk back to Suri, her posture more upright and a manner unmistakably more confident. As she reached the outskirts of the village, a cry rang out and everybody stopped what they were doing and looked at her. There was fear in their eyes, she noted as she passed. She held out her arms as she walked to show she had not been bitten, and smiling, she gestured to the bag with Parker's head inside. The children ran to meet her, cheering. She proceeded down the street at a jog, and they ran alongside her, chanting rhythmically. There was laughter in their eyes and relief. Stepping into the hut of the chief Okoyot, Akili, she set the head down at the foot of his table, and he asked her to sit. He was immensely old, with bright eyes, set in a heavily lined face. It is done. They call you Great Warrior Woman. I'm honored. Are you sure you got the right man? 101%. Check the head, but be careful not to touch the blood. If you have a strong stomach, I can take it to his remains. Thank you, the head will be fine. Are you sure he was working alone? I remember Paka well. Arrogant little bastard. He has left none alive so far, and I see no reason why he'd be able to keep any company for long. Our wives and children can walk without fear now. We cannot put a price on that. But here is the amount you asked for. He placed a purse on the table. She checked the contents and nodded. That will cover it. Will you stay with us for a while? Even if no children of Paka emerge from the jungle, there is still much good to be done here. You can afford me. <laughs> Would you consider doing it purely for the benefit of others? Man, did you pick the wrong person to ask that? It is so. All hail Athena, goddess of war. Hey, Jumbo. She toasted in reply, tapping his cup with her own. Yeah, in retrospect, I had a hell of a lot to learn that story does seem to imply that the most badass person in all of Africa is a white woman. That the most terrifying thing for us is the idea of giant black men stealing our white women. The stories come on leaps and bounds with many, many people of colour as main protagonists. I'd flatter myself in feeling that that was even that much better than uh, that one that I read the first time round about the assassin. Most first-time writers are at least somewhat oblivious to the world. A lot of extremely successful writers are entirely oblivious to the world. But it had potential. Potential which I make it my business to try to fulfill every week. On the subject of casual racism, let's talk about the Roger Moore era of Bond films and the henchman agent. More specifically, uh, Roger Moore, when he gets out, is genuinely shaken. Yeah. He's not that good an actor. No. <laughs> yeah. He's like, uh, like she, she, you know, he gets out of it with his like special cufflink thing, and then she's like, oh, oh I don't know, must have accidentally pressed a button, just like that bit in Thunderball. And um, yes. uh, no, it's the, it's the it's the sly Chinaman who's uh, been uh, you know meddling with the controls, and then you know ends up fighting him later on. It's like, don't trust the sly Chinaman. This the weird kind of colonial <laughs> sensibility that Roger Moore kind of brought with him. 
but he, like he's he's aghast. His hair's all skew with. His face is all melty. He's sweating like a motherfucker. It's it's just not the least bit glamorous, and it's it's it's, it's a far cry from his uh, like clipped British brushed and washed uh, sensibilities in living at dime. Speaking of the sly Chinaman, the the sly Chinaman is is Chang is thrown out of a window in Venice. You know. Very yep. nice fight scene. Good, he dies, etc. I think he's actually Japanese because he was doing kendo yeah. later okay. on. Ja- Japanese. Like, Chang is thrown out of a window and dies, mm. and, as as henchmen have to do. And you know, but it's like a Fu Manchu reference. He's a bit of a naff henchman because he only makes it halfway through the film. Drax is then seen calling up and talking about getting a replacement for Chang. Who can you recommend? Yes, he sounds ideal. And then you see Jaws get on a plane. Is that a henchman hotline? Yeah, yeah. Is that is there like just a universal hotline for villains to call up and say, look? I need a henchman. He needs to have some sort of deformity. He um, says on the phone, doesn't he? Or you can get him. Yes, he'll be just right or whatever. Yeah, yeah. so it must be an agency or something. Who was saying that? Just, well, he's like he's eight feet tall. He has metal teeth. Yes, <laughs> yeah. he'll do fine. Oh, I've got I've got just the boy for you. He's, he's a very tall bloke. He's uh, got this lovely you know metal teeth thing going on. Uh, he, he comes very highly recommended. Uh, his former employer. Uh, he outlived his former employer, so that's that's good on him. Uh, he's he, bit a shark um, he bit a yes. shark. He bit a shark. He bit a shark. You want a shark bit? He can bite a shark for you. Absolutely. I hope you don't keep sharks because you'll bite them. <laughs> I just I want that person on the other end of the phone to be like that. <sighs> Thank you, James. You're quite welcome. Okay, uh, then this basically gave way to something which I really should talk about when it comes to uh, View to a Kill, but there's so many films in between now and then, and that's something known as The Turtle is Hungry. Now, um, a while ago, uh, Adam and Joe were talking about Bob Dylan singing a song about Alicia Keys. And um, it was like, oh, I'm singing about Alicia Keys when I was in, 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 she was living down the lane. And it's like Bob Dylan today singing about Alicia Keys. And Joe said, God, imagine Bob Dylan getting off with Alicia Keys. It'd be like an old turtle eating a delicious piece of fruit. And that kind of stuck that in my head. <sighs> she is very beautiful, uh, a very beautiful lady, done. Alicia Keys. Yeah. I can imagine her and Bob Dylan making sweet love. He goes for there was a rumor I heard. It'd be like a tortoise eating some sort of a <laughs> <laughs> some sort of a fresh fruit. <laughs> and then when I saw View to a Kill and hit that scene with Polar Ivanov, I thought, Oh Ooh. no, 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 stop it! No, it's just rotten old turtle just sort of going. Ah, nah, you're very pretty young thing. The turtle starts to rot in for your eyes only when you, when you see him under, underwater in the um, the. <laughs> The scuba suit, and he comes up to the beautiful Melina Havelock, and the yeah. the skin around his eyes is all bunched up and wrinkled mm. because the the aqua suit is slightly too tight, and it's like right, right, turtle rotting, time to go. Uh, to a degree, Connery was was guilty of this as well, and by the end of his run, Pierce Brosnan was getting a bit turtleish as well. He was, yes. So- I'm hoping that Daniel Craig doesn't outstay his welcome and become an old turtle himself because it's, it's when Bond starts to sort of, you know, lust after the nude bit of skirt mm. that you're like, oh, dude, seriously, act your age. Folks, did Daniel Craig turn into a rotten old turtle inspector? Not a rotten old turtle inspector, inspector, forget it. Now, inevitably, in the next few years, Roger Moore is going to die and I'm going to feel sorry because hungry old turtle though he was... And colonial though he was, he is still kind of a British institution. 
Right, okay, so moving swiftly on from that one. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention German. Yep, dude who is like the most German man in the world. Oh, Stamper. The, the Aryan, the yep. Aryan Stamper. Like, he's clearly meant to be like, again, you know, again, going back to the whole classic Bond formula, he's clearly meant to be the new kind of Red Grant or Hans. I th- is Hans the, um, the henchman from You Only Live Twice? Who yes, is, the one who gets eaten by Piranhas, Dave Yeah, the gets eaten by Piranhas, yeah, Dave Prowse. Yeah, he, he's clearly the new Darth Vader, well, the new David Prowse. And I, you know, he was a good enough character. Interesting, I think he's like, I think he's the first or one of the only henchmen to die after the villain. Usually the henchman goes first. Yeah, what, do you think he was recommended by that uh, henchman agent? I think he was, I think he was. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely, lovely Paul John, German bloke for you, yes. He's, he's, he's very good. Oh, he's got such muscles, he wears nice tight t-shirts, yeah. Don't, can, don't yeah. let him near missiles, he gets his foot stuck, it takes ages to get him out, if you get him out at all, otherwise he's scraping off the walls. Later on the Firefly episode... Any more and more stories? Only I think this is fantastic. <laughs> I don't know, it's a shame they had to kill him. Did they kill him? No, no, they didn't. He just no, no, he, he ran off away to, oh, well, he, to fight another day, oh, like Blofeld. He survived, okay, well that's, yeah, it's a shame <laughs> he didn't come back. The henchman gets hil- killed in quite a horrendous way. Ah, yes, that's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other henchman, yeah. Yeah, the second oh. horrible death for a henchman there, but... One of the funniest moments. Been agent on the phone straight away for this game. <laughs> if only James was here. Henchman agent. Ah, Mr. Niska, such a pleasure as always. How is Ivon working out for you? You know, Ivon Crow, seven foot tall Ostrogoth, carries a big hook boomerang thing, scary face tattoo, good at Scrabble, like to eat puppies. This man is dead. Dead? Oh, good gracious me. He was kicked into Starship Engine by a filthy double-dealing brown coat. Kicked into an engine? Yes. You're sure he's quite dead? He really was a tough bugger. Could he still be out there hunting down his quarry, clinging to the underside of their spaceship, perhaps? He did like to do that. Obliterated? That does sound nasty. Hey ho, though, hazard of the trade, I could tell you a few stories. Well, I'll inform his 16 children. You have other men for me? Oh, absolutely. I've got a boatload on the books. One's got metal teeth, I've got one with a claw for a hand. One of them's got a laser eye in his forehead, a robot arm, and a robot leg. Just the one robot leg. Yes, it's not very balanced, I'll be honest. He can't run very fast, and when he does, it's not a pretty sight, but you should see him stride. Yes, actually we do have a torture assistant. Big blonde fellow, very German. I am German. Even more German than you, though. This next bit is from the Batman Returns show. Yes, this is the Henchman Hotline. Gotham City, you say? Well, it's very funny you should call me today because right now we've got a special offer on clowns. Yes, they all used to work at a circus, but it burned down and there were questions about several children got a bit eaten. Very eaten. Gobbled right up, they were. Yes, that is a selling point. Uh, That's why I snapped them all up. Anyway, it's a a group rate. If you hire three clowns, you get seven free. Oh, we've got all sorts. We've got clowns on bikes, clowns on trikes. We've got big hairy ones whose name is Mike. Uh, Do you like stilts? We've got clowns on stilts with machine guns. Oh, they're very durable. You can set these guys on fire, you can blow them up, you can shoot them. They love it. A Batman, you say? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure these clowns will have no trouble with a Batman. I'll take six 
excellent choice, sir. I'll have them on the first creepy miniature train over to Gotham tomorrow morning. Oh, and if you're in the market for goons in Gotham, do keep an eye out for one of mine, Bob. I haven't seen him for about three years. I'm going to talk about the final confrontation between Batman and the Penguin. It's a little confusing, but here is the confluence of events. Batman races towards the Penguin's lair in his new Batski through the sewer pipes, at the same time hijacking the Penguin's frequency and preventing the Penguin's as in the little penguins, from launching enough explosives to destroy Gotham. These explosives, like everything else the penguin owns, such as flame-throwing umbrellas and an angry, violent circus troupe, were flushed down the toilet over the years by careless Gothamites. The penguin's ex-circus workers flee at the thought of the bat. Penguin tries to escape in a large duck. Batman crushes his duck with the batski and they have a fight. During that fight, Batman pulls out a detonation device that is beeping for no apparent reason. The exploding penguins, the little ones, then turn up at the abandoned zoo they are fighting in. The penguin, the big one, easily disarms Batman of the detonator and presses the button, something Bruce anticipated as its secondary function is to release a swarm of bats from the trunk of the Batmobile. They home in on the penguin, causing him to crash backwards through a skylight, falling to his death. The penguins also fire off in the little ones enough explosives to destroy Gotham, something Batman has just allowed Penguin to do. As the zoo explodes around them, Batman confronts Selina, who wishes to kill Max. Despite murdering three people in this film, Batman tells her he cannot allow this to happen, claiming that the law applies to both of them, something which is patently not true, considering his status as a masked vigilante wanted by the police. He then rips off his own cowl in full view of Max, knowing that their intention is to send the man to jail, along with the secret identity of Batman, despite the fact that in an earlier scene, both of them found out each other's identities. Bruce asks Selina to come back with him, but she decides that she would rather sleep rough on the slowy streets of Gotham than follow up on a potentially fulfilling relationship with a broken kindred spirit, choosing self-destruction over the possibility of emotional healing for both of them. Max then shoots Batman once and Selina four times with a 357 Magnum. Both of them survive, Batman because he is wearing really thick rubber and Selina because she has the power of Wolverine. She rationalises that because she is fond of cats that she has nine lives, counts off the seven she has lost already and throws the eighth away, undergoing agonising pain in an electric murder-suicide with Max that fries his carcass like overdone fajita meat. The penguin, the big one, Mortally wounded and bleeding, both red blood from scratches and green blood from internal hemorrhaging, then attempts to kill Batman one last time. He fails, dies, and is given a Viking funeral minus the fire by six penguins the size of little people who scrape his capacious frame down a concrete ramp and into a pool of industrial waste. The music and tone is sad, as though the world didn't understand this creature, too weird to live, too rare to die. The director was hoping the audience would conveniently forget that he is a psychotic, hate-filled arsehole without compassion, reasoning, or any other redeeming features. And a sex pest. The penguin, I mean, not Tim Burton. He's just an... <laughs> you just want to get that, make that clear. He is Tim Burton is just an occasional twat, and this is one of those occasions. He's not a sex pest that we are aware of. This was another much requested section, the very penisy moment in the Alien podcast, which you wouldn't think would be hilarious, but actually kind of turned out to be one of the most fun ones we've ever done. 
It did seem like a fusion of, of uh, creature and machine, that, that thing. That's what, that's what Giga does. If you've ever actually looked at Giga's other art, it's fucked up. You actually got me a set of Giga tarot cards for my, one of my either birthday or Christmas back when we first met, and it was like, ew, you don't know me at all yet, do you? This, this, it was like a guy putting a shotgun in his mouth that was also his cock. And a bunch what? of uh, a wall Wait, the covered. Shotgun was his cock, or his mouth was that? No, no, the, the shotgun no, was I his cock. And a woman with a shotgun cock boob and screaming babies stuck to a wall. Let me find the shotgun mouth cock thing. <laughs> I mean, no pressure. I'm not that curious. <laughs> I wonder what happens if you type shotgun cock into Google. Men don't. Don't. Turn the search off first and... Do not do it. Gun, maybe? Rather than shotgun? Are you really just trying to avoid typing shotgun cock into Google? I don't know if it was a shot... It was actually a cock or not. I can't remember. Maybe it was just a dream I had. (laughs) (laughs) This one I made earlier. Oh, that's the one. Actually, that's not necessarily his cock. But he's like... It doesn't look like it's attached to him. No, no, it's not actually his cock. The fool... Like, you know, rather than performing an unspeakable act upon this woman, he's just going to blow his head off. So, yeah, uh, if you've ever actually seen any of his other artwork, H.R. Giga is absolutely round the twist, but he was able to contribute to this, you know, fantastic creature and, uh, indeed, the space jockeys, which should come full circle in the next couple of weeks. There's another thing about the egg chamber that Kane stumbles into. Where's the queen? This is another thing that may be uh, answered in the next few weeks, but I kind of feel like in the background, where Kane wasn't looking, there was a queen just sort of rubbing her hands together going, come on, come on, this is going to be so sweet. But <laughs> the actual life cycle of this creature is based on real uh, insects and real parasites in real life. There are, are, are things which you, know, you find out about on, on the Discovery Channel that, like... Um, there's various different parts of their life cycle. Like, first they infect an insect, and then that insect uh, gets eaten by a fish. And then, with the parasite now inside the fish, the fish then is compelled to swim closer to the surface to actually seek out more sunlight, which inadvertently ends up getting the fish eaten by a bird, and then the parasite's in a bird. It's all part of the life cycle of this fucked-up creature. Or wasps that lay their eggs in spiders. It's, if you look at the insect world, it's absolutely savage. And introducing, that, introducing humans to that insect world is part of the basis of what makes Alien so terrifying. It's part of the basis of the, uh, the title, really, if you think about it. The, the Alien, it's not just Alien because it's an extraterrestrial. Because technically speaking, so are they. They're out in territory that's not theirs. Um, it's Alien because there's no way that they can comprehend it. It, it behaves thinks, acts, feeds, reproduces in ways they have never encountered before. Hang on, I've got a really good picture coming up here. I hope it's on this foot. With a shotgun penis, I don't want to see it. There is no shotgun penis. I'm giving you a no shotgun penis guarantee. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) I just imagined a photo of Alex smiling, pointing at the screen. And just like a caption underneath, I can give you a no shotgun penis guarantee. (laughs) Here's a mega mix of some of my favourite bits from the Alien Resurrection show, culminating in me going absolutely ballistic over alien DNA. I remember, you know, throughout the 90s, reading sort of, oh, were they going to do another alien film? How are they going to do that? How are they going to get Weaver back? Well, they clone her. They what? 
And it, I, so I'd kind of, I was already leaning into it, this whole idea of the clone Ripley thing. But when you actually get to Ripley, that's actually not Ripley. There, there, there's a whole... Dan Hedaya asks, how does she have memories? And it's like, oh, it's part of the um, genetic heritage of the aliens. They save memories in DNA, a gift from the alien species she now shares genetic material with, so she can remember everything, except that she doesn't, and she can't, and she's not actually Ripley. At best, she's Ripley's daughter. That's effectively what a clone is. If you're taking a cell from somebody and creating another person out of that cell... That's their, that is their child. The normal process for this is sperm meets egg. If you're doing it with one cell in a test tube, it's still the same process. Mm. But Her character's completely inconsistent, though. Like, at the beginning of the film, she's like this, oh, I don't understand what's going on around me. You must explain to me these human words that I don't understand. And then later on in the film, she's making quits like she's a Joss Whedon character. Like, <laughs> do you want another who trophy? Do I have to fuck to get off this ship. It's yep. like. Side note: one of the most fun things to do is to get the normally placid Joshua Garrity on and get him really, really cross about something. If Josh rages and rages and goes, "I can't believe," oh, I consider that a win. Where does she learn his cultural you... reference points? Even the original Ellen Ripley wasn't that snappy. Yeah, it's just, how do you... How does a character evolve that quickly in that space of time? And it's oh, it's the alien the DNA. Well, no. That is a fucking no, half-assed right. excuse they lean on for the entire film, and it doesn't fucking work. Nope. <sighs> also, there'd be... So much. If if she's got such vivid memories of being Ripley, wouldn't she have hugely vivid memories of also being a queen? And also, yes. she, if, if she speaks almost with candor of you know, I encountered these things before. What did you do? I died. If she's taken from blood samples that happened way before that event, she has no memory of that. Yet she's speaking as though she does. And also, if you're going to inherit the alien's ability to remember stuff surely it would all be the queen's memories like you wouldn't well, remember Ripley. She, she didn't have any memories she was like alive for like one second so the queen wasn't even alive yeah. she was jesting she was this big i'm holding my thumb and forefinger not very far apart at this point what memories do you have well there was a heart <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't make sense Sorry, while we're on the subject of acid, because this is something that bothered me immensely <laughs> when watching this film again. And the rest of the stuff didn't. Why the hell did they put aliens in a cell that wasn't acid proof? Now, something yep. came That's back exactly at That's exactly what I and said! And why, did, you, why did they put three of them together? Somebody, somebody came back at me saying, well, maybe they didn't know they had acid blood and stuff like that. They knew that they needed hosts for the face huggers. They knew the queen was going to lay eggs. They knew a lot of things about the aliens. So I'm assuming, <laughs> just assuming here, that they knew they had acid blood. So why, why on earth aren't they in cells that would be resistant to acid? It's not hard, okay? It's not hard. Different kinds of acid <laughs> burn different kinds of things, okay? It's shown that this acid burns glass, and there's only one kind of acid that burns glass, and that's hydrofluoric acid. So I'm assuming just put them in a very thick plastic cage, and the acid is useless, okay? 
Mm-hmm. When they're doing the, you know, when they start doing the bit where they go um, sell two unauthorized openings, sell five, six, seven, blah blah blah, they go up to ten. That suggests aliens one through ten had individual cells. Then they ran out of cells, so they put the last two in the same cell. I think that makes sense. Well noticed. That would explain why they were... So I'm going to come back to the numbers. If you've only got ten cells, why make twelve? Alien DNA. And then... (laughs) And then... And then the alien queen gives birth to live young with her giant external human womb without the aid of alien sperm. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. You can't say alien DNA. Alien DNA cancels out human DNA. Deep breath, dude. Deep breath. Just, 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 come. (laughs) (laughs) This is the greatest podcast ever. I just... It couldn't happen ever in the history of ever. And this is what I imagine the executives were doing when they were coming up with all the ideas for Alien Resurrection. Well, we've got to have a facehugger. This should be a comedy. Could Skeet Ulrich be in this? Well, we've got to have a queen. Give the new alien the giant schlong. That makes me uncomfortable. Cut it off. Well, we've got to have a chestburster. Put basketball in there. All the kids are playing that. Does Sigourney want to come back? She says she doesn't want to come back. Give her $11 million and as many baby hearts as she wants. Well, we've got to have a robot. She says she doesn't need baby hearts. Well, we've got to have the alien hitch aboard the ship at the end. Yeah, that's right, Skeet. You suck on that dick. I'm gonna make you a star. Cover everything in sperm. Not you, Skeet. Well, wait two minutes. Well, we've got to have the ship explode. Skeet, stop crying. It puts me off. Could the alien wear Reeboks? This is gonna be the best sci-fi since Screamers. If you enjoyed that footage of me going absolutely ballistic as a stupid film pushed me to the end of my rope, please enjoy Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. But there are two more which happen in Superman 4 which are the biggest two fingers up to physics I have ever seen in my life. Flying with the Statue of Liberty? No, that's not even it. I mean, that, yes, the the way he was holding it, you'd need to hold it from a different position. But anyway, uh, (laughs) first off, Lex... Put some protoplasm into a box with some of Superman's hair, which, by the way, was holding up a 1,000-pound weight, yet Lex was able to clip it with bolt cutters. He then put some snippings of material in the box to grow clothes around Nuclear Man for the sake of common decency. And even his nephew says, that's not going to be enough. And he says, ah, the computer will do it. That's not how computers work. You can't put... A bit of tracksuit in a bomb and expect it to be formed into a wrestler outfit. That's not even the worst. Nuclear Man is... Oh. Oh my god. Nuclear Man is bits of Superman's DNA, bits of Lex's DNA, bits of tracksuit, and a nuclear explosion powered by Earth's yellow sun. Because as we all know, Earth's Yellow Sun is Superman's greatest weakness. Every time Nuclear Man blasts Superman with solar energy, he's gonna get stronger, not weaker! Power at 400% capacity. How about that? 
cast your mind back to just after the um, uh, the Great Wall of China fight with Nuclear Man. They they fly back into outer space. Superman tries to grab Nuclear Man's booties. Nuclear Man gets really pissed off, turns around, and uses his ice breath to freeze Superman. Okay. Space operates at a temperature of one degree higher than absolute zero. The one degree higher is residual radiation from the Big Bang. That's minus 270 degrees Celsius, folks. That means you can literally only get one degree colder than space itself. The temperature required to freeze water, (laughs) of which there is none in space, I might add. Yeah, that isn't already frozen. Considerably (laughs) higher than absolute zero. Ergo, there is no possible way you can inhale nothing and then blow out water all over Superman and freeze him into a perfectly cut ice cube diamondy shape. It just that's that's literally I mean, he'd be frozen anyway. <sighs> but that's not the worst of it. <laughs> that's not the worst. He pushes the moon so that it causes an eclipse, so that radiation dude, radio, what's his name? Nuclear man, can't be in direct sunlight. But that only works if you're standing on the Earth at a certain position. If you're really close to the moon, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Also, massive, massive disasters and tidal waves. Fuck the tides! (laughs) You completely change the gravitational matrix of the Earth! You twat! And it's alright, he's just going to fly back in time and sort it. But that's not the worst bit! The dude is holding Mariel Hemingway! And then he goes, oh, I can't see the sun. And so she, she sort of flops down. But she's breathing in space! <laughs> Alex, only dogs can hear you now. She's just, just, just... It's space! She's not wearing a space suit! It's ridiculous! I don't even think dogs can hear you now. She would have frozen and suffocated in space. There is no atmosphere. Breathe. Die. Breathe. And Superman picks her up and takes her back through Earth's atmosphere, at which point she would burn up and become carbon in his hands. (laughs) So he could turn her into a diamond. (laughs) There you go, Pops. Oh, my God. It's just the stupidest fucking moment in cinema. Anyway. Worse than blowing oil back into a tanker. Uh, Oh, God. (laughs) So, yeah. Superman 4, in comparison to Superman 3, is bad. (laughs) It made I just go off the high picture scale. I'm sorry about all the screaming, folks. It's just... I, I know that Superman doesn't make sense anyway, but, I mean, no one said... How come Mariel Hemingway's breathing in space? <laughs> Shit. Oh. It was while we were doing Digital Gonzo that I came up with the sound of Gonzo. And uh, the point of Digital Gonzo that was different from Digital Cowboys was that I didn't have a host along with me. I had guests every week, so it was always kind of a crapshoot as to who I might get. But Sound of Gonzo, I would get on people specifically to talk about uh, the music from movies and video games that they loved. And uh, this one time I had on James Bachelor, actually there's ten times I had on James Bachelor, he loves that kind of show. And uh, he pitched me his idea for a spy thriller using the music from Mission Impossible 2. So, 
later on, like, like I'll, I'll tell you when to kind of kick off. Like picture kind of the Pease Gloria, which is the, the ski resort from Unmasked Super Service. Your service, yep. Right, okay, Ooh. here. It's like picture the trailer Pease... for the Bond game coming out. It so. is Pease Gloria in the middle of the mountains. A helicopter during this point is someone in the helicopter is firing um, rocket launchers at the top of a mountain above Peace Gloria. Everything goes deathly silent for a moment before you start seeing some of the snow starting to slip. Kind of like Mulan um, in the, the Tangshao Pass. Yep. An avalanche oh. begins. Our Still. hero, a generic spy person, is locked in a cupboard or in a room. Fridge. In, um, Peace Gloria. In a, <laughs> no, in a, in a cupboard. He's bashing the door with his shoulder, bursts through tries to find a way out, look, runs to the back of the resort, looks up the mountain, sees the, uh, the avalanche approach. Coming. Shit! Runs and tries to find an escape. He knows he needs to get down the mountain faster, he needs supplies, he starts bashing against another door, and again, trying to get in and trying to get It just says supplies on the side. The helicopter is watching, the avalanche approaches, there's fuel tanks at the back because it's a film, it has to explode. Of course! And out Ooh, the guy on a snowboard. <laughs> of course he had a snowboard, Happy. He had a snowboard. The helicopter starts chasing him down the mountain. Is the helicopter on a snowboard too? No, certainly <laughs> no. Machine gun fire. You know those, like, those bullet cannons that just follow something as it's going? Through the snow. Just... Exactly. Yeah. They can't fire for shit, but they can certainly make it look good. not the point. <laughs> Maybe the snowboard throws in a kind of a, a loop-de-loop kind of hairish. Then there was that time where we took the last Airbender movie to task for everything that it did wrong, especially the abominable amount of exposition. In the movie, it's possible Zhao actually has to deliver the worst, most clumsy expositionary dialogue of all. Most of his lines appear to be about scrolls. And folks, beware any movie with sentences that start with, as you know, because if the person who the line is being delivered to already knows, why is it even being said? As you know, I conducted a raid on the Great Library. I have found scrolls in the library. What have you learned from the stolen scrolls? In my raid of the Great Library earlier this year... Found a scroll? I found a scroll. Yep, thought so. This is a scroll from the Great Library. Everybody got that? As you know, the Fire Lord has banished his son, the Prince, and renounced his love of him. Your failure in the Hundred Day Siege of Ba Sing Se won't be held against you. Your son died in that siege, didn't he? Again, I offer my condolences on your nephew burning to death in that terrible accident. As you know, I conducted a raid on the Great Library, which most said didn't even exist. Get on with it. Yes! Get on with it! We're apparently called it Huang Chung originally. Huang Chung. And they changed it to Wang to make it easier for people to pick Again, if you listen to the lyrics of this one, it's quite disturbing. You gotta take your baby by the ears and prey upon her darkest fears. <laughs> Come here, you Come here. My darkest fears are being grabbed by the ears, you bastards! <laughs> oh, God bless the 80s. Everyone was God, it was all pop collars and rolled up jacket sleeves back then. It was awesome. That's when you could wear a t shirt with a sports coat. 
You don't see that well, these you days. Can, you still can. You have to be famous in a certain type of fashion. Or doing it ironically. Or doing it being at an 80s party. I couldn't get over the t-shirt this sports coat. <laughs> have you ever been in a dance hall deadlock? I have never. I've I'd almost once back in 1997, but I managed to avoid it. I, I averted dance hall deadlock once. It was by doing impromptu right. Michael Jackson routines and you know that thing where you, you're like a kid at school disco and you fling your arms out left, right and centre it's like everyone look at me I am the best dancer on the floor and nobody dances with you <laughs> that is how you avert a dance hall deadlock clear the dance floor someone get in there and embarrass yourself right put on opposites to track by Paula Abdul <laughs> I am going to be scat cat <laughs> Meanwhile, on our Iron Man 3 show, this next piece I put together after having a very vivid dream about this exact scenario taking place and waking up laughing. Does everybody remember Justin Hammer, Sam Rockwell from Iron Man 2? Well? Tony, hey. Hey, Justin. Thanks for meeting with me. Yeah, my least favorite person. Let me just say on behalf of the entirety of New York City, that was a solid we owe you. Mm-hmm. In fact, we owe the entire team. In fact, the entire world loves you right now. And you know what? I got Earth's mightiest marketing team behind me right now. Had a few words with your buddy Thor. Mm, what? We made this last week. Check it I'm out. I'm on a journey. You make that journey special. Oh, dear God. The world tree grows. And you are sitting right on top of it. Any great chicks are gonna love this one. My hammer is rising. Yikes. Every dream is a poem waiting to be kissed into a magic. Chanel number five. How about that? He says 41 words, he gets paid $7 million. Insipid. Yeah, okay, I would pay $7 million if you would never show me that one again. Okay, I get it. Not your style, plus you're rich anyway. Been talking to the people at Audi. Iron Man transforming car. That doesn't really make sense. I don't even transform. Natasha, baby cakes. Can I call you baby cakes? No. We've been talking to Victoria's Secret. The visual genius is there, put together this picture to give you an idea of what it would look like with your body in their lingerie. Wait a minute. How did you get this? Oh, you know, don't sweat it. That's not your body. They just took your head and put it on another model's body. This is a violation of trust. You don't even need to take your clothes off. We can just use this image if we want. If you want. I could kill you with an eyelash. Clint, buddy. 2012, year of the bow. Mainly thanks to you. We've been thinking about getting you an upgrade. I'm on the phone right now to musket manufacturers. We're bringing it back. You're the poster child. Just say the word. This is your matter of national security. Okay, just putting this one out there. The Hawk iPhone. No, Jesus, no. Pepper. Pepper Potts. Justin. CEO of Stark Enterprises, Iron Man's main squeeze. When he's squeezing her, what's she drinking? Dr. Pepper, go. Weren't you arrested and taken into federal custody? Nicky, Nick, the big N. Okay, kids, they love the eye patch. They're wearing them out in the street. The trouble is, their depth perception is going straight to hell. Would you consider a monocle? Get this motherfucker off my helicarrier. Stanley, Stanley, how's it hanging? Hollywood called, they want you to now appear in every movie. Excelsior! Okay, that's what I'm talking about. So if you need an agent? I don't, at all. How did you get into my office? Steve, Cap, can I call you Cap? No, you may not. You are a big, huge, major hit with the over-80s. Uh... 
Good. Country Kitchen, Old Spice, Werther's Originals. Okay, I'm done here. What, too German? Okay, Dr. Banner. I'm gonna say two words. Hulk Burgers. I don't think I'm really prepared to do that. The supersize and the happy meal, they're hulking out, the kids will love it, green meat. I'm not feeling comfortable with this, I think we're done here. Banner, just give me a few more minutes of your time. A few more minutes? Okay, how about this? Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Yeah, where's your chair now? Okay, let me just uh, take this away from you here. And uh, the Iron Man watch. Hmm, The Iron Man whiskey. Not going to touch that one. Because these are private. Obadiah stain remover. Come on. Um, Yeah, it was just an idea. Classy. Classy move. Trevor Slattery, my main Mandarin. Justin Hammer, as I live and breathe. Let me tell you something, baby. People are loving your character. We're talking a Gatorade. Yes. New hot British Mandarin flavor. Yes. New line of Calvin Klein bathrobes. Ooh, loving it. New phone with exactly ten rings. I will do anything you say. That's what I'm talking about. That's why I love this guy. Some of the absolute best Digital Gonzo episodes were, of course, our Lord of the Rings shows. This next section focuses largely on the character of Gollum. But let's start with a word from my daughter, who would have been four at the time. What is the Lord of the Rings about? Uh, well, the ring was on the Lord, and it was going to be on the face, so it came to the volcano, and it came burned down. Yeah, okay. Who bought it there? Sam. And? Frodo. And what was the name of the wizard? Gandalf. And what happened to him? Um, he died. And then? And then he was Gandalf the White. And Aragorn? Um, he was still alive. And do you like Gollum? No. What does Gollum say? Um, my precious. When they're in Athelion, we get the standout moment for Gollum, I think. I think if people try and look back on, on real moments for Gollum, this is the one. Smeagol and Gollum fight. Yeah. This is the scene that cemented Gollum as my favourite character in the trilogy. Yeah. And it's Andy Serkis's performance again, and the animation. This is where it's at its best. Mm. And I think uh, watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, they were saying they pretty much copied Andy Circus note for note. They made almost no changes. Um, and the because sk- watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, you see Andy Circus switch between the two characters, and it's instantaneous. Mm. Like, there's no... Um, cut where they, okay, right, now do the Smeagol bits, and okay, now do the Gollum bits. He does it all in one go. That's an amazing feat of acting there. He had two cameras, and he was pointing his face into one, and then his face into the other. And it was it was just that, running all the way through. It was, it's like a... It's effectively a soliloquy with two yeah. people. And, and the way that scene is filmed as well, um, having those two cameras, it really emphasizes the fact that there are two people in that person. And their facial features are different as well. They actually, yeah. they look like two different characters, which sells that even more. Lyra got it. She understood. She actually, she tapped the left side of her head and said Smeagol, and the right side of her head and said Gollum. So if you can explain that to a four-year-old, then you're doing the right thing. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the fundamental physical differences between them is um, Smeagol's pupils are more dilated. Yeah. Mm. And Smeagol's um, face is narrower 
he's more upward looking and his jaw is, is lower, less gritted, more expressive. Gollum is this sort of warped, bubble-headed creature with bug eyes, gnashing, savage teeth. Folks have heard my Gollum voice several times before. To do it right, you can't just do the Gollum voice like this. You have to hunch your shoulders and become that character. You have to feel his mouth and teeth. You have to get the claws of his hands together and, and feel the frustration and the knotting and unknotting of muscles and and the pressure pushing down on this character and the conflict and the Smeagol, it's it's like you have to tilt your body downwards and look upwards a little bit and, and, and clench your stomach like this. But that's that's why whenever I hear someone doing a Gollum impression, just doing it with their mouth, it's not the same thing at all. Whenever I, I see someone who's actually able to do it, it's like, well, respect at that point. Yeah, that's that's why they picked Andy Circus to begin with, isn't it? Um, uh, Peter Jackson was so impressed by all the effort he put into the voice, he sort of, cre- sort of created the character just by himself, just yeah. by doing the voice. He thought, how does this character react? And what sort of facial movements do I have to do to create this voice? And he basically, Andy Serkis made Gollum how he is. He was actually hurting himself to put on that voice yep. as well. They had uh, in the behind the scenes documentaries, they were talking about his Gollum juice, which was like a combination of honey. <laughs> it sounds really obscene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, he needed that so he could keep doing the, the voice because it was tearing up his vocal cords, having to do that every day. Yeah. It's it's not a pleasant place to be if you're actually going to go into the Gollum mindset. It's it's actually quite traumatizing to to go through that. I also loved the uh, the reworded but still the same tune. Um the no, the the the, the uh, we want so so sweet to catch a fish. Yeah, to catch yeah. a fish or a walrus. But I can't remember. It was, it was got, about killing a goblin. I can't remember what the words are, but it was brilliant. Two of them doing creepy golem voices. Now. <laughs> we have a sterile process. Quiet. That doesn't know. Um, that I am stupid, master. Fat hot bastards. <laughs> And that doesn't taste very nice, does that, Precious? No, Precious, that doesn't. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. I challenge you to a golem off. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've, I've, that's not the first I've been in. <laughs> I'm done, you finished. I need defeat. Good. In episode number 149 in late 2013, we were very proud to have on our show for the first time. Bob Movie Bob Chipman, along with Daniel Floyd and Lily Scaldaferi of Extra Credits. And we talked about fan response, something which has only grown more and more toxic in the years since. This was just before Gamergate, and it kind of feels like a prelude. But, um, yeah, we talked about a variety of subjects, and uh, this was Bob talking about what certain people take from certain kinds of persuasive satirical media. See, I love to think too deeply into things. I love to come up with things that don't really make much sense, but I tend to forgive material that is brilliant at its core because my emotional response is the key. Yeah. It's not my intellectual response. And I agree. I absolutely agree with that. Like, I love talking about um, how, you know, science and 
and theories of work, especially in Mass Effect, one of my favorite conversations to have is how would time actually be consistent in the Mass Effect universe if time is, you know, relevant to a planet. But anyway. um, And there you broke the entire series with that one question. (laughs) that's, That's what I mean. You know, it's so easy to break just an entire universe like that. But the thing is that that's not what I'm thinking about the entire time I'm playing it. It is fun to have those conversations. So I have nothing against that. But Every clock in I, the universe is set to Earth time. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Let, let's not give the, the, the nerd culture nitpick um, industry too much credit here, if only because it I, I find it helpful to keep in mind that we generally only hear the really, really hardcore nitpick stuff come out as a way to justify the hatred of something that they already hate. Because mm. if it's something that they like, it tends to get, like, glossed right over. Yeah. I mean, like, St- Star Trek has always had, you know, a very loose grasp of even its own, you know, in-universe science. Yeah. You know, the the Enterprise, you know, not being able to go underwater thing or whatever, it's, it's a legit nitpick if you're big on the science of those things. But that comes up because they didn't like Star Trek Into Darkness. That's a very good reason for it. Star Trek Into Darkness was terrible. But, uh, you know, that's why. Um, when, uh, <laughs> and that's your prerogative. And, that, and that's your prerogative. Carry on, but, carry on. But, but, and that's uh, some Bob Leffick conversation. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 it's just fine. It's just fine. Um, it's similarly, you know, back on video games when, uh, you know, notoriously, uh, gaming culture has never ever wanted to talk about sexism, portrayal of women, whatever. Mm. Oh, wait, then, hang on. We'll be getting to that in just a second, but yeah, oh, uh, oh yeah. But like Metroid Other M came out and then suddenly everyone was, uh, Gloria Steinem. now now here's an attempt to attack a throwbacky wii game you know so man the man the horses ladies you know suddenly every bro in gaming was uh you know the um you know a a gender studies expert and could talk all about patriarchy and could talk all about uh, what a terrible influence adam was as a character and this that and vice versa because all right because now we have a chance to bring down nintendo for ruining everything with motion controls so by all means let's use that that is, I mean, it's a good thing, though, that ultimately people are now able to access that level of information and sharpen up on things like that, rather than just going, oh, this is gay. But it's uh, using it, it's misusing that uh, resource. You know, it's a secondary are... thing. It's a secondary thing gone to, like, I, I, I love the way that uh, Film Crit Hulk describes them as the tangible details. Like, there's something you don't like, and if you can't find, like, with if you don't know storytelling fundamentals perhaps you can't like isolate why in a dramatic sense something doesn't work you can at the very least find some soft scientific things that don't make sense and yeah. latch whatever you can figure out that seems wrong with the movie you can latch onto or game i suppose you know a kitchen knife is a very useful tool but i'm not going to leave one out where an eight-year-old can find it a little knowledge in the wrong hands is a dangerous thing nice point yeah. And that comes down to the, the misuse of things that they've read. Like I said, the whole the South Park thing. South Park's been going on for so long and has reached so many ears and so many people with its smart, dryly delivered message that a lot of the time is open to interpretation. They don't tend to say what they mean. You have to figure it out for yourself. And a lot of people don't. They take a lot at face value. Yeah. They also tend to conclude, well, Matt and Trey appear to think this, and they're smart, so if I think this, then I'm smart. 
sometimes they mean the opposite of what they say. The the South Park guys are an unusual case because it, I, I believe them when they say that the show is nothing but them agreeing with one another. You know, that it's this, it's stuff they find funny, it's stuff they agree with. Mm. Uh, I, I do think that, uh, they have really, when you want to talk about like a, a privileged viewpoint, you know, the, the, the overriding philosophical run of, uh, of where South Park tends to come from is this sort of idea of, you know, stop being upset about things. Like, like the, if South Park has a credo, it's calm down, don't be so upset about things, things are not as bad as they seem. Find a middle ground. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it's, it, you, it feels to me, especially now as I, as I get older, like in, in high school, South Park was, you know, the smartest thing I'd ever seen. Mm. I was in high school. You know, I was an yep. idiot. A lot of times, like the overriding credo of, you know, things are okay, you know, don't get so upset, like the, the voting thing, you know, where, the, you know, the whole thing of, you know, vote or die, you know, is, uh, you know, they made fun of the idea of being passionate about politics. The, the point of that episode was never, you know, vote for this guy, don't vote for this guy. The point of that episode was, you know, it, it, it's that tired Ron Paul libertarian shtick of, you know, well, you know, both parties are totally the same, you know, and they won't actually mean anything different. And what I want to say to people who say that, who tend to like the South Park guys be, you know, middle class white guys, you know, with uh, pretty good incomes going, yes, it's not too much different for you. Yeah. You're perfectly okay. For so many other people around the world, especially, that did matter. You know, uh, you know, there's not that much difference between Kerry or Bush. You know, Kerry probably would have ended that war two years earlier. There's a whole bunch of people dead who I think would say there actually is a difference. But I'm going to get off on a huge rant if I keep going there, so please cut me off right now. No, no, I love your rants. I love it when you get fired up about shit. I love that. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to do dominate the conversation, but yeah, that's... It's what this show originally started out as. I, anything which actually has a point to it, I nurture like a baby dinosaur. No, thank you. <laughs> okay, so that's the problem with South Park. That is the problem with South Park. <laughs> Let us move on. This podcast was brought to you by Loot Crate. The best crate for you. That is a lie. It is not brought to you by Loot Crate. We don't do ads. We have a Patreon. And you guys who support us are the best. If you enjoyed listening to excerpts from these episodes, then you'll want to take a look at our Patreon, which I just overhauled. Spent ages doing this, my God. I'm still technically doing it. I'm still curating this thing because I put hundreds of things on here over the years. And it's been this sort of huge, long blog roll. If you follow every week then here's the new stuff but god help you if you want to go back in and uh, find something i just overhauled it it is now a hell of a lot easier to navigate with the new tag system right now i've got 241 shows on the school of movies podcast feed which is not even half of my complete backlog over nine years a ton of these archived shows are available exclusively on Patreon for our $5 per month supporters, with re-releases coming every week, so there's something new all the time. As well as access to all of those classic shows, you get two-day early access to every new show that we release. You can also hear our backstage chats, which can't be found anywhere else, and the quick reviews of movies I record with Sharon when I come back from the cinema. Can't find them anywhere else. All the Sound of Gonzo's on there too. That is a hell of a lot of extra content for five bucks a month. As long as you never get sick of my voice, you will always have something to listen to. And for that five dollars, which won't quite buy you a slap-up meal at McDonald's every month, you'll be supporting two of the best podcasts around. 
New Century and School of Movies. On episode 161 of Digital Gonzo, which ended up inadvertently becoming the last episode of Digital Gonzo as it was then, we talked all about Pacific Rim. We had an array of fantastic guests, including Alistair Stewart. I want to call Gypsy her, although I think at some point uh, Raleigh actually refers to Gypsy as him. But it's a her, really. Look no, at that. No, Marco says her heart. When was the last time you saw it? Of yes. course. Yeah, it's a her. Okay. Yeah, speaking of her heart, uh, it's Iron Man's heart. It, it glows between orange uh, and blue, but very specifically at the beginning. It comes churning up, and you get that same idea and the same symbolism of this is a heart for all humanity again. And at that point, when uh, which you just mentioned with, with Marco, that, that's the point when they're finally laid bare to each other and they've um, they've got nothing else left to hide. And uh, they're sitting in front of Gypsy, sort of ruminating on what they have left to do. Yes, it's one of the best uh, moments for me. I think Gypsy's heart, for me, brought the idea of this, uh, the, the combining of the whole of, of humanity and what is represented by those primary colours. Because it starts out, when it starts to warm up, it's red, then it goes to yellow, and then it finally goes to blue when it's at its most intense. And like I said, for me, the blue was kind of the, the decisive aggressive action the red as you've said is is the heart and the 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 core of the nature of humanity and yellow for me whenever yellow showed up it was about knowledge and insight and understanding and basically the idea that the heart gives you the starting place and you can't do anything without it but without moving that on to knowledge and insight it can't act on its own and then you have to go from that combining of heart and courage and, and love and um, and intent through knowledge and insight and understanding and then finally manifest that as action if you want to get anything done. And of course Gypsy's last weapon before she explodes is to blast the living shit out of the, the biggest level 5 kaiju with her heart. She's also the only one that has that particular chest plate. Yeah, um, and it's particularly significant with Striker and, and the kind of very interesting levels of of masculine mindset of a very, of a very particular sort that you get with the two handsome men. That Striker, that Striker Eureka's heart is not only not covered or covered rather, but that Striker has the largest chest. Mm. That yeah, it's extremely, very very built out, very very armored. And there's almost a case for saying that the the kind of emotional catastrophe that is the Hanson men's family relationship is reflected in the configuration of the Jaeger they're driving. And of course, behind the uh, chess plate, you get eight giant penis missiles. But yeah, you don't uh, get much more macho than that. Emblematic of aggression (laughs) being uh, held. You know, you know, you laid my heart bare. Right, I'm going to shoot you in the face with a missile. Uh, let's talk about Herc and Chuck Hansen because when I first saw the film, I was like, wow, Chuck Hansen is like, I mean, th- this has been um, arranged like a sports movie by Del Toro on purpose. And uh, Chuck specifically is the, the star quarterback guy who sort of comes in and he's like cartoonishly angry, angrily um, arrogant uh, towards Raleigh. And like, he's, he's so rude immediately from the get go with, with no uh, course for it. But at the same time, by the end, you realise that underneath all of that, he's just mush, and he's just over-egging the arrogance pudding. There's a, a really interesting take on Chuck 
which Marguerite found, and I, unfortunately I can't cite the source for it, ah. which is it becomes a completely different movie if you approach it as Chuck is gay and he is completely in denial over his sexuality. And Herc has known for a long, long time because, of course, they drifted over and over again. Chuck never wanted to speak about it. And oh, it my becomes- God, that'd be brilliant. Exactly. And it completely changes the dynamic with Rolly. It completely changes the dynamic with Dad. Yeah. And it even puts a very different spin on, on one of my favorite scenes, which is the last conversation that Chuck and Stacker have. When Stacker has that one where he kind of very gently says, you're a puzzle I solved on day one. And if you interpret Chuck as a man who is completely at odds with his own sexuality with his own sense of personal identity that line from Stacker almost becomes reassuring and almost becomes no it's okay I know too everyone does it's alright and Herx you got my son there my son in this there is nothing that will stop you being my son precisely god that's Test. Marguerite is. Did, did you say Marguerite found that or figured that one out? She found that. Oh, I, will, right. I will find the source for you. But right, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call that canon. Shall we call that canon? <laughs> the thing is, though, if you if it's if not, it bloody way, should be. If, if you look at the way this is structured in terms of the how the the pilots interact, there is so much in this about. Um, intimacy and and that's what the drift kind of becomes this shorthand for and because of the fact that you don't have almost the the only kind of intimacy that that big tough action movies are normally used to is either male female intimacy and straight male female intimacy I might add or the kind of bro intimacy that's not really intimacy it's the punch on the shoulder because you can't quite bring yourself to give the other person a hug but even outside of of that notion of of Chuck being gay and not and totally not being able to admit it even to himself, let alone to anyone else. You've got an examination of the intimacy between a father and son. You've got the intimacy uh, between um, Newt and Gottlieb when they drift together. Mm. Um, the, the fact that they are clearly two people who have been hurt immensely through especially the young part of their lives where they were outcasts in their own um, environments and you know would have been a tiny flash of Gottlieb crying and clearly being bullied absolutely and the idea that they that that's that's the kind of thing that by and large even now men and boys are not encouraged to share that these things when they happen they fucking hurt but you can't ever talk about it with somebody and you certainly can't cry about it with somebody and that idea that that within this drift within this space you don't have to say it you don't have to overcome that block in your throat that doesn't let you talk about it the fact that you can't keep the tears out of your eyes when you actually form the words you don't have to in the drift they just know that the drift becomes a literal and metaphorical safe space, basically. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Episode 161 ended with this final monologue. This is the last episode of Digital Gonzo for a while. There are several reasons why I'm putting the show on hiatus, some of which I will go into on the forums if you'd like to know more. Most importantly, it boils down to the amount of time and effort I need to devote to my new Century book series. 
Gonzo dominates my entire week, and as such, juggling it with writing the cartographer's handbook has been exhausting. I had hoped I could keep both the show and the book running concurrently in 2014, with enough of a good reception and support from my listeners. Being a podcaster is great fun, but I do want to do more with my life and actually start paying the bills with the creative work I produce. Once again, to everyone who has helped me by promoting this book and paying for their copy, as well as the people who have donated to Gonzo in general, thank you so very much. It's more appreciated than you know. Now, I've been writing this book for more than a third of my life, and its release and reception represents a major step forward for me. However, I failed to make that clear to enough of you, and this has been widely regarded as yet another side project, like Gonzo Adventures or Praxis Effect or the Batman audio dramas. I've been naive and idealistic in following the donation business model as well. As a result, I'm going to have to refocus the beginning of my 2014 on marketing the book and its audio in more conventional ways, whilst at the same time devoting myself to mapping out the ongoing book series and getting the first part of New Century Season 1 written and recorded. I want to bring as many of you guys as possible with me on this next step. It is a really exciting time for me creatively, and your feedback, support, and pimping of New Century all feeds and nourishes the series. Digital Gonzo probably won't be gone forever. This is my 370th podcast. And after all these years, I still love reviewing movies with my guests. I could be back in a week's time, a month, six months, a year, or five. It really all depends on a number of real-world factors. My New Year's resolution in 2013 was to get my first book published. Through an immense amount of hard work, I succeeded. My resolution for 2014 is to get the second book released, which now seems so much more achievable. And so with that... I wish a Happy New Year to all of you. Although I want to wrap up Digital Gonzo at the end of my 500th, I don't really want to leave you guys with that down note. The Patreon happened since then, and that has solved a lot of the issues. So we will begin with the birth of Digital Drift next week on the 501st episode. But until then, to play us out... Let's have an incredibly fun and triumphant moment. The 150th episode of Digital Gonzo was kind of a D&D game using the old fighting fantasy game books. It was my first time as a dungeon master, and I think I did okay. This was probably the highlight for a lot of people. It was just a sort of an odd moment of emergent gameplay where Neil asked to do something that I hadn't actually planned on. There is one more set of stairs. God By the sake. way, that corridor with the fireball, was there any doors? There were no doors in the fireball corridor, no. Just, just fireball, okay. You come to another corridor with a door very similar to the one that you found outside the Griffin's room, only this one is on the other side. Look around, it is another stable-type area, uh, this time without a portcullis. From behind this much larger door, you see an enormous lizard. Who keeps a lizard in their castle? You spot a saddle and a bridle in one corner. Oh, it's a riding lizard. 
Who keeps a riding lizard upstairs? <laughs> is hey. the lizard wider than the corridor and the staircases? Because if so, that doesn't make a lot of sense. The elf, using his awareness, spots an enormous ramp at the other end, leading up to a giant pair of double doors, and surmises that this is a ramp that the lizard may use to reach the upper floors. Okay. Anyone else sensing an idea for a shortcut? I do. Want to ride the lizard up the stairs? Ride the lizard. <laughs> I'm sick of all these damn Jump scripts. on the lizard! Is <laughs> it ride the lizard? Jump the lizard. Does any one of you have ride ability? I do. You do. Uh, what is it at? Nine. Nine. Okay. Uh, if you did unlatch this door, you would have to first test your luck. Uh oh. <laughs> and then test your ride. Would my luck go down if I tested it? Your luck would be uh, go down by one point. Can I just... My luck is seven. Can I yeah. just point out the fact that riding the lizard is probably not the greatest idea in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Sneak attack. To be honest, it's it's hardly subtle. And, uh, you know, How we're going to get separated as well. He, he is a thief. We should listen to him. He knows about subtle. You know, and to be honest, you ain't the luckiest bloke in the world, and you know, I wouldn't push you like if I was you, so I'd just say let the lizard go, cause a bit of chaos, or just keep going. We can come back and get it later. We can ride the lizard out of here. Can we all sit on the lizard? Is there some kind of consensus you could reach on the lizard? The lizard looks up and hisses at the dwarf, but this doesn't necessarily mean it's angry. Can we? It's Can a lizard. Pass the lizard and use the ramp. There is some stairs beside the ramp. Okay. The so ramp is simply for the. Is, uh, is, is this door locked? Uh, the door is in the same way as the griffin. It is. Uh, it has a large beam across it to prevent the lizard from busting out. I'm assuming I could, can. I reach this beam, or am I too short? You could reach the beam. It's slightly higher than it would be for other people, but you could, if you wished, go in there. You don't have to test your luck. You would simply have to test your riding ability. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go in there. The dwarf lifts the beam, opens the door very, very slowly and carefully, and using his riding skill, roll 2d6. Hey, all, watch this. Seven. The lizard goes... (laughs) However, it's... Behaviour reminds you of the ponies which you have ridden in the past. And using a little bit more firmness than you normally would, you wrestle yourself up on top of it using the saddle and are now astride an enormous lizard. My massive lizard, my massive lizard. It is important to note you cannot fight from atop the lizard. It is not a battle lizard. But you can ride it if you wish. Um... How much room is up up on the lizard? How many people could we conceivably fit on top of the lizard? Does anyone else have riding skill? Yep. No. Nope. None. Okay. Effectively, carrying two, the other two, the the other person would also have to have riding skill. Can I once again point out that the lizard might not be the best time? If the it's lizard only, if hisses it's only like, at the thief. It's only twenty feet to them doors, and there's just nowhere to go on the other side. You'll feel a bit of a farm on top of the lizard. You know what I mean? But if there's bad guys on the other side of the door, 
a lizard could add some intimidation to our party, which we might well. It's got a saddle. How intimidating can it be? It's how intimidating as can gallop and knock people over. It makes the dwarf look bigger. Was that a high joke? That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Out, the dwarf looks That's pretty bloody point. impressive with an axe, which he can't use at the minute. Howan's noting of how impressive the dwarf is has been noted. Decision <laughs> <laughs> um, will affect you in day five. <laughs> the dwarf winks at Howan. <laughs> Oi, no dwarf. Easy, tiger, easy now. All right. <laughs> Do you mean easy I don't lizard? Play that close to the ground, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the lizard shakes itself impatiently, wondering what you're going to do. Right, okay, we need to proceed. Let's, let's move up the ramp. Or not. Just leave the lizard behind. It's not exactly the most impressive lizard in the world. It's just sitting. The lizard shoots past Herod Brodwin, <laughs> knocking him to one side. The dwarf careering on the top of it. It rams, <laughs> runs up the ramp and rams open the double doors at yeah. the top. The other three charge after him, and you find yourselves in a large room. <laughs> You've been listening to Digital Gonzo. I've been Alex Shaw. And how am I going to sign off for each of these? Um, I can give you a no shotgun penis guarantee. That should be the sign off. That should just be your, your website motto from now on. <laughs> Digital Gonzo, a no shotgun no penis, shotgun penis <laughs> guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I, I got it. Yeah, I got his it. daughter's going to listen to these at some point. <laughs> God, I sincerely hope not. Okay, guys, secret code time. If you got to the end of this podcast, then when you tweet at me, or you say hi on Facebook, or you're on the forum, make sure you give me the code NSPG. No shotgun penis guarantee. Those four letters are your badge of honor. My name is Nicholas Cox. My friends call me One Thumb. He holds up his hands, and we see he has only one thumb.